Hello and welcome to the Saturday Down South podcast. He is Chris Marler. I am Tom Guerra. Marler, today we are going back to the 2007 SEC Championship for It Just Meant More, a game that we have circled for a bit just because mm-hmm. a certain best friend of ours, Jacob Hester, may or may not have had, uh, but definitely did, have a pretty significant role in this game. So it was great to be able to talk to Hester, which we have an interview with him that we will get to in a bit. Also got to talk to Tennessee quarterback Eric Ainge, yeah. who was kind enough to join us for a little bit of his time, shared kind of some of the, the scars that he still has from this game and the impact that, that it made on him. And he actually just tweeted about this the other day. But we're talking about this at 3 o'clock on Wednesday afternoon. And I have a reference here that's absolutely gross, and I want you to stick with me here. Okay. So we have uh, tried to figure out the perfect time to be able to record this podcast. Our entire goal this week is to be Johnny on the spot, ready when the SEC schedule drops. Hopefully by the time that people are listening to this, when this comes out, this will have already been in the past. SEC schedule is already out, yada, 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 whatever. But because we're sitting here Wednesday, 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time, we are essentially daring the SEC scheduling gods to to make this happen while we're recording. We know it's going to happen. I mean, all I've done, if it it isn't out by Sunday when this is is finally up, I like check for me either in a jail cell (laughs) or a psych ward because I'm so tired of staring at my computer waiting for something to happen. Um, I'm very frustrated with yes. this whole thing. And it's, I, admittedly, I'm frustrated because of selfish reasons. I want it to come out. I don't know what's taking so long. I also had a fire tweet about it on Sunday night because I thought it was coming out on the next Monday, day. Yeah. yeah, I'm gonna blame you for that, even though there's no one. What? Else. You were like, I'm pretty sure it's coming out on Monday. I didn't say I'm pretty sure it's coming yeah, out on Yeah, on Friday Monday. you said, so word is the schedule's gonna come out on Monday. Word, no, we're, yeah. Yeah. yeah, okay, that's It's not that's your fair. fault, but that I was like going off that. And also I'd heard from one of our other best friends some, you know, not anything concrete or definite, but some rumors that that, that was what's going to happen. Yeah. So then I tweeted that and then got just DMs full of, hey, when's that schedule coming out? And I was like, funny thing about that is. Um, yeah. So right now what we're doing is, and you guys, if you've listened to the podcast for a while, know that a lot of times we will record a pod, and in the middle of it, or right after we're done recording, some kind of large news will break. Yes, okay? huge. No, just, I mean, almost every time. So, yeah, what we're doing basically is just Lieutenant Dan in the in the crow's nest, screaming mm-hmm. at, at, at God or the, the scheduling gods to come on out with it, just in the pouring down rain with no legs. The gross reference that I was going to make was, have you ever done a gallon milk chug challenge with someone? No, I drank spoiled milk for money one time that's gross i don't recommend that it this is essentially like that in which i've witnessed it i've never participated in one i don't want to put my body through that but i have i have friends who have done this and i've watched them do this and they get to a certain point in the challenge when the milk isn't actually making them get sick right and they get to the point where their stomach feels so awful where they just say we're just going to chug milk until we until we puke essentially (sighs) Is the goal. And that is kind of what we are doing by recording this podcast right now. Is we are just saying, you know what? This is going to come out. We're we're tempting fate. We're going to do this. And even if it's the least convenient time possible for us, this is going to come out as a result of us doing it. That's just the way that the world works. I mean, what's the worst going to happen? My audio doesn't work. We have to re-record the whole thing anyway. It's totally fine. (laughs) 
So we have a lot to get to. This game was awesome. Awesome rewatch. Yeah. Recommend everybody. There's a lot of different versions to be able to rewatch. If you want to rewatch the highlight game, just the highlight clip that's like 18 minutes or something like that. There's the full two and a half hour one as well. It is a great, great rewatch for a game that doesn't really have a lot of points, but it has some great storylines. Yeah. And this, of course was in the midst of one of the craziest years, the craziest year in college football history, the 2007 season, where you had 12 top five teams who lost to unranked teams. Number two, being ranked number two in the country was a death sentence. Oh, God. After the first BCS poll came out on October 14th during this 2007 season, you had, on October 18th, South Florida, number two, South Florida, loses to unranked Rutgers. What a great Thursday night games. Oh, Unforgettable. November 3rd, my half birthday, Boston College loses to unranked Florida State. Again, Boston College losing to unranked Florida State? What, what, what kind of year is this? A little Matt Ryan action? A little Matty Ice? Number uh, November 15th, you had Oregon losing to unranked Arizona. Nine days later, November 24th, you have Kansas losing to number four, Mizzou. If you need to know anything about 2007, just know that Kansas and Illinois played in New Year's Six slash BCS bowl games. That's all you need to Again, know right there. If, if you know me at all, you know that that is hands down my favorite college game day moment of all time, too. Great atmosphere, the, great Eric game. Mangino. No, no, Mark Mangino. Mark Mangino. Mark Mangino combined um, into one person. If you know Mark Mangino, uh, I mean, you know, he's a, he's a hefty fella. He's a hefty fella. Uh, and there's a giant face cut out. football guy. He's a football guy. He's, a, he's definitely a football guy. Um, but giant face cut out, come back from break, someone's slamming a giant cut out of a cupcake into his face. Hilarious. Great, great comedy all around. December 1st of that season, of course, the same day that this game is played, that night after the SEC championship, you have one of the most famous upsets in college football in the 21st century for my money, West Virginia losing to unranked Pitt. Now, why was that such a big upset? Because Man. at the time, it didn't even feel like an upset possibility. It was so far off the radar that it wasn't even really discussed right. during this game. Well, you had West Virginia, number two in the country, of course, entering as a 28-point favorite against a 4-7 and Pitt team that was coached by Dave Wanstead. Former Chicago Bear, great coach Dave Wanstead. Went to uh, school, high school, with his uh, his nephews. Oh, fun, fun fact! Fun yeah. fact. Do they have mustaches too? No, they were one of them was extremely hairy. Wade and Keith Hudson from they were both wrestlers, both like really, yeah. really, yeah. But they they that makes sense. Wade looked like a Wanstead. I'll say that. Mm, okay, that very distinct breed of human being is, is a Wanstead. <laughs> People forget, not not only that West Virginia lost that game 13-9, that team that had Steve Slayton and Pat White, was just essentially illegal to have in, in the video game. Pat McAfee missed a 20-yarder and a 32-yarder. Yeah, Pat McAfee, the guy who ended up being you know all-pro punter in the NFL and is now doing huge things in, in the media world. Yeah, he missed a 20-yarder and a 32-yarder, got like death threats and all that stuff afterwards. Wild, wild day. How many day, grammatical errors do you think were in those death threats from, from West Virginia fans? Oh, I'm not going to say that West Virginia fans would have had more errors in their death threats okay, than the average fair. college football fan. I think the average college football fan has a lot of errors, you know, most long Facebook posts, stuff like that. Yeah. I don't want to single out West Virginia fans. They're very we'll passionate people. We'll save that for another day. <laughs> so, of course, we know that this... 
this year is is wild. We don't even know, though, if LSU is going to have a chance at a national championship because they're coming off of this brutal loss to Darren McFadden-led Arkansas, the triple overtime game in Death Valley. Incredible game. Vern even poured dirt on their season. And I think that's kind of what fueled a little bit of his silence to talk about the national championship picture and all that stuff. And you're wondering, okay, why was it such a foregone conclusion that LSU wasn't going to be playing in the national championship? Well, entering this conference championship weekend, LSU was number seven in the BCS rankings, which are what matter at this point. Right. You have number six, Virginia Tech. Yeah, the Virginia Tech team that LSU beat like a drum Max. earlier in the year, 48-7. to seven. Both of those teams were 10-2, and two, and LSU had five... T- Top 25 wins compared to three for Virginia Tech. That just shows you right there the flaws of the BCS system and how bad it was. You have number five, Kansas, number four, Georgia, number three, Ohio State. Problem is, none of those three teams had a conference title game to play in. Not ideal. Not ideal. Number two, West Virginia, of course, had the infamous loss to Pitt. So that, all those things, plus LSU winning in this SEC championship, was what it took to get a two-loss team in the national championship. It hasn't happened before, it hasn't happened since, and it took the right amount of just sheer, wild, unpredictable, complete chaos Chaos. for this situation to play out. Yeah, it was, I mean, one of my favorite endings to the year ever, or to any season ever. The number two ranking thing is like, that's like, I know we say this a lot, we've never seen, or I say this a lot, we've never seen this before. Um, We hadn't ever seen that before, and, and that's one of those things where, I don't want to get all, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to make a prediction that ends up getting like old takes exposed because I'm really good at that. But um, that should never be broken. Like, I mean, nine different, was it nine straight weeks? It was It was something to that effect with, it wasn't quite nine straight weeks with number two, but in the BCS standings, that's that's what kept, especially the fact that it happened so late in the year. And it wasn't just like an early season thing where you know, it's kind of figured out. Right. It was that this was still happening through conference championship weekend. And there was just, you, you just had no feel whatsoever for how this season was going to play out. You had Kansas sitting there undefeated in late November. Like, what? I mean, yeah, Mizzou and Kansas were both, well, first off, Kansas went to the Orange Bowl. Because right. even though Mizzou won that game, um, I believe since they got to the Big 12 championship and then lost to Oklahoma, then you had Kansas got the, what do you call it, the, um, I guess, Big 12 bid for yeah. the New Year's Six Bowl, or not them, but BCS Bowl. They, they went to the Orange Bowl. I mean, it was, I can't think of anybody from that team besides, was it Todd Reesing and, and Aqib Tlaib? That was it? From that Kansas team? Yeah, yeah. I think so. I, so I, I couldn't tell you. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it was a crazy year, though. And just all throughout the year, you have, like, the, like LSU plays this overtime game against Kentucky. Uh, a lot of Georgia fans reminded me of this this week, the Matthew Stafford and Mikey Henderson, Georgia-Bama um, game from Olivia. There There's just a great games all year long in the SEC. And Ohio State, the team that was considered, like, the lock to go to play for a national championship, their loss was to Illinois. Right. Illinois. Juice Williams, Illinois. Yeah, and that Illinois team that went to the Rose Bowl, by the way. Weird, weird times in college football. And this game played a significant part in that, though at the time we did not realize how important it would be. So before we get into all the characters and all the events that unfolded on this day, Marler, can you first tell us about our friends at BetOnline? Guys, say it each and every week. Get over to BetOnline.ag today. We got basketball to bet on. Oh, man, I got real caught up in the Zion hype this week. 
made a mistake on betting a little parlay on the over and uh, the Pels plus two and a half in the first quarter of that game where they got absolutely boat raced in. So that was not my favorite weekend, uh, favorite moment of the weekend. But get over to betonline.ag today. Make sure you get some bets in. We got basketball, we got baseball, we got a ton of stuff going on right now um, that you can gamble on. Or head over to the poker tables like I've been doing. All right, back at it. Les Miles, the LSU coach who lost in the shuffle of this wild day is the fact that this is the same day that Kirk Herbstreet had the college game day where he said that Les Miles has gone to Michigan. Right. Les held, held a presser that day two hours before the SEC championship was played. That doesn't happen. That no. doesn't happen. People need to know that. Saying that he was staying at LSU and that a contract extension had been agreed upon in principle. But in many ways, so that all plays out. You have, we've talked about this before and how weird of a, of a dynamic that was just because yeah. people know that Les Miles is a Michigan man. We talked to Hester about this as well, but how strange it was that this would precede a conference championship right. and how there was so much uncertainty in the air about what exactly was going on. It was Les Miles about to make this big jump from one, what looked like college football power to another. Yeah, so it's weird too because in this day and age, like present times, I could easily see, and I know it's only like 13 years apart, but like I could easily see this happening. News like this breaking before a big game, kind of media trying to be the first to break something and kind of ruining and raining on someone's parade, could easily see that happening. Did not see that a lot uh, before this. And it also, I guess we haven't really seen it since, but when it happened, Everyone kind of just took it as like, yeah, okay. That's that, gospel, yeah. That, that's gospel. That's what's exactly what's going to happen. It made sense. He's a Michigan man. Um, all of that made sense. And, and, and also, this is still at a time where Les is kind of – he had an incredible start, incredible start to his, his uh, tenure at LSU. Coming out in 2005, 2006 – I'm sorry, was he there in 2004? No, he no. Started, 2005 was year one, 2006 was year two. Both had top five finishes. Right, and 11-plus so, wins – so you're talking about a guy that had an incredible start, but still somehow in Saban's shadow a little bit. Yep. So it all just kind of made sense that, yeah, why would you not go to Michigan with that, that story tradition? Because at the time, I didn't do a lot of research. Google wasn't as prominent. I didn't know Michigan still only had <laughs> half a national title uh, in the last uh, 70 years. So there's that. This was at a time, too, when you couldn't just hop on Twitter and get yeah. this big breaking news or anything like that. And it's interesting because... Herbstreit really doesn't do that a lot at all nope. anymore. He is not the guy that's going to get up there and break news. And I can't help but think that this, being one of the ultimate cold takes of the 21st century Oof. in college football, played a part in that. And you know what? That's fine. Herbstreit can stay doing what he does, and then you know the the Ross Tellingers of the world can continue to do what they do. Right. But it was weird seeing this play out on such a big stage and yep. less feeling the need to address it because, of course... If it's the elephant in the room and if you don't address it, then you're going to have recruits decommitting left and right. It creates such a weird cloud over the SEC championship. And I give Les credit for getting out there before this game and, and telling his team, look, no, this isn't happening. Saying in the public that it's not happening. Obviously, we've seen coaches in the past who have gone right. back on their word. Said that they're not, yeah, yeah, that being one of them. Um, but still, I give Les credit for the way that he handled this and the way that he was actually able to get his team focused after what was – just a bad week in the headlines to have the Arkansas loss and to feel like you just missed out on this opportunity to play for a national championship when it was sitting right there in front of you. And less to his credit, this in many ways, I think, set up 
what we came to know of Les. Yeah. And this this really sets the stage for so much of him and maybe a little bit to, to a fault in, in putting faith in him that he's just going to find a way to figure it out where you start off number two in the country and this was expected to be the year for less. And yeah. Hester has talked about this before, of this progression of year one to year two to year three. And they really felt like they had their ducks in a row to be able to make a championship run and to potentially, by doing that, get out of Saban's shadow. A lot of moving parts for less. And I just, I, I can't s- say it enough. As much as we kind of give him flack for the way that things fizzled out and his stubbornness, this year and what he did, two loss or not, yeah. Very, very impressive. I, I will say, yeah, I mean, I remember, I'll, I probably never forget how awkward this moment was and how much I had overstepped my um, my boundaries here. Uh, <laughs> at the at the College Ball Hall of Fame, um, you know, sit down we had, I don't know what you would call it, with uh, with Hester and PB and, and, um, and Tom Hart and all them. I remember saying a stance that I've had for quite some time and, and stood by about Georgia being the best team in the country to close out that 2007 season. And Hester was very matter of fact with telling me, he's like, by the way, we mm. won the national championship. I'm the one who has the ring, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so, yeah, like, I think a lot has to be made out of what Les Miles was able to do and not just salvaging a season, but like what he was able to do throughout the entire year, because that's, that's not easy. That's just not easy to do with how much chaos was going on. I think it also speaks volumes to a couple other things that were happening in this game specifically. One, it shows you kind of like the the I don't want to say the beginning um, or like the genesis of, of what became like this great love affair between LSU fans and Les Miles because what he did and his work with with what happened after Katrina was mm-hmm. you know incredible and, and unparalleled through like a lot of you know a lot of things we've ever heard with, with coaching staffs and their community um, so you already have that kind of built in but this when he goes up and gives his speech beforehand denying the Michigan rumors and, and makes the comment about Mike I got to go coach my damn fine football team. That became that's that, peak that almost felt like he became yeah it was peak less. It almost felt like that's when he became one of them because that's mm-hmm. that's when LSU fans like truly started to embrace him as uh, as as theirs. The other thing I think it really shows, and it's it's easy to forget this because what we know of this game now, especially the SEC championship, was not that big of like I don't say it wasn't that big of a deal, but not a lot of people, hardly any thought it was a big enough deal to where this kind of news would need to wait. Or that, that it was even, it wasn't the biggest game of the day. It didn't have the most implications of who was going to go to the national championship, which when you think about that now, that's almost never the case. So that's, it's kind of crazy to think about that. Still in such early stages of the seven consecutive national championships. Right. This is only year two of that streak. On the other sideline, a guy in a very different, uh, very different, um, situation with his fans, publicly, everything. Philip Fulmer, very weird year for the Tennessee coach where you start off as a top 15 team, but you lose two of your first three games and both of which were by double digits. Mm-hmm. One of those games was the 39-point beatdown at Florida. And then Saban dominates Fulmer in year one at Bama. and With five starters the, out? Yeah, I mean, that, that 2007 Bama team was not exactly what we came to know of the Saban era. But then you smoke Georgia, you finish strong, you win a division title, you're fourth in seven years, and then he ends up actually winning a bowl game still and getting an extension, but then he's fired a year later. Right. And he went from the guy who, in the middle of the season, every Tennessee fan, I shouldn't say every Tennessee fan, Tennessee fans wanted gone. Mm-hmm. 
that that was a, a foregone conclusion. When you're an aging coach like that, it looks like you've lost your touch a little bit. We're, we're talking about someone who had gone nine years, hadn't won a division, hadn't won an SEC title since '98, of course, when they won the national championship. And it was just like, have we reached our peak with Philip Fulmer? And he was in just a a very murky spot. But at the same time, he's sitting there with a chance before this game to win an SEC championship and potentially turn around his legacy as it was as it appeared to be trailing off. Yeah, I mean, it's I, I always have said this. I've never really understood why Fulmer got such a raw deal, I think, at the end of his career. But it kind of does make sense. And I think with where the expectations were especially, because we, we've talked about this before, it's crazy that this is nine years after. Like, they, they haven't had an SEC championship in nine years, right? And you think about just how close they really came to not only winning multiple SEC championships, but potential national championships mm-hmm. when they were at this peak of between 98 and 2001. Mm-hmm. Uh, or maybe even, well, yeah, not 2002, but 2001. Um, I mean, it's just crazy how quickly that faded. And I understand why to an extent, but it's also something that, um, man, like I, I do wonder if the university or their fans kind of like regret that, especially in the situation they're in now, because now he's back, he's the AD, you know, and, and all is well, but... It was a very, very odd ending to somebody that's really an SEC coaching legend. And it just seemed like he was one bad year away from getting fired. Yeah. And as we found out a year later, yep, that's exactly what the case was. The A-listers, there's a lot in this game. We're not going to be able to get to all of them for time's sake. We're not going to get to some of these great LSU receivers, Early Doucette, Brandon LaFell, Demetrius Bird, those guys. There's a lot of people that we will not get to. But some of the guys that I think were that are at least worth bringing up, Arian Foster, the Tennessee running yep. back, who... In my opinion, one of the smoothest runners that I've seen in recent memory. Not not sure. just at the college level, but at the NFL level. Just everything he does just looks so smooth. And even on a day where he gets bottled up, I was surprised to look at the, the box score and see that he actually was held to 55 yards on 21 carries because I look at the way that he runs, and I'm like, dang, like that guy just he has an effortless way about him mm-hmm. even when he's getting bottled up. But this season was a breakout year for him. Had over 1,500 scrimmage yards, 14 touchdowns. But that LSU front, it just gave him all sorts of problems, even though Glenn Dorsey, as we will talk about in a minute here, was essentially sidelined for all of this game. Mm-hmm. And in a year, though, so Foster has this this kind of breakout year. He wasn't even first-team All-SEC because of how good running backs yeah. were this year. You had McFadden, Felix Jones, Sean Moreno, and, of course, you know the one and only Jacob Pester. I mean, just a tough, tough group to be able to kind of crack through. And Tennessee needed a lot of Arian Foster on this day, and unfortunately Mm -hmm. they didn't necessarily get that. Yeah, it was – I mean, he was really, really good. But I think, as you said, it is also still crazy to think about just how deep and loaded this entire conference was Mm -hmm. with running backs. Because my first thought was, yeah, you have McFadden, and then just like – and no Sean. And, you know, again, forgot about Felix Jones, who also went in the first round. Of course. He did. This is true. People forget that. Very, very loaded group of backs in the SEC. Tennessee, though, was a a team that that needed some big-time stops on this day, and a guy that was going to be able to get it for him was Gerard Mayo, the Tennessee linebacker who I don't know how in the world, in in an eight-day stretch, he made 34 tackles against SEC competition. He had 15 tackles in this game, and that was freshly removed from that 19-tackle performance that he had in that marathon game against Kentucky. Dude is just everywhere. 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 I'm sore just hearing that stat. (laughs) 
I mean, it's a, the, the ice bath that that guy needed was probably very, very long. Number 10 overall pick the following year in the NFL draft. Had a nice eight-year career in the NFL. Made an all-pro team. He's now coaching inside linebackers for Bill Belichick. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Guy who knows how to tackle. Pretty pretty reliable, it would seem. Eric Gaines, the Tennessee quarterback. Dude threw the ball 519 times this year. I can't even count that high. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I can't. That, that I mean... That is a ridiculous, ridiculous amount. You think about, especially with a team that has Arian Foster at running back. That's like that's leech stuff. Absurd, yeah. That's, I mean, he had an incredible year, but still, wow. Only sacked three times, too, which is the That is ridiculous. Thing. Tennessee offensive line was darn good 2007. Yeah. Maybe not the best day in terms of creating those running lanes, but definitely kept Eric Ainge upright. Had 31 touchdown passes this season. Only average 6.8 yards per attempt. That's why we kind of like to come back to that, not just look at sheer volume. And right. you know, I think from an efficiency standpoint, that's a very important stat. But he's a week removed from that SEC record seven touchdown pass game that he had against Kentucky. Just very, very much on a roll as a quarterback, but had struggles in this game. And as he will share with us, yeah, some of those struggles – have followed him throughout his life and you know he he's been very open to about mm-hmm. his his addiction um in the nfl struggled with painkiller addiction alcohol addiction all that stuff but the good news is that he's doing doing yeah. really well now hosting radio show in, in tennessee and is someone that has become a, a big part of the tennessee media as well so i had actually texted eric Ainge and was like hey um, got any stories about this game? Like to be able to do that with some of these these former athletes who can provide some different type of perspective stuff that we don't always get on these two and a half hour broadcasts. Right. And he's like, let me just come on the podcast. So we're like, all right, sure, Absolutely. let's do it. So let's go to our interview with Eric Ainge. We're now excited to be joined by a very special guest, very prominent figure of this 2007 SEC championship that we were talking about. It is Tennessee quarterback Eric Ainge. Eric, you, I, I texted you earlier, and you said you've got some stories about this game. I know this didn't end up the way that you were hoping for, but fire away with your best stories from what was just a, a wild, wild SEC championship. Yeah, I mean, there's two things that first, you know, thanks for having me on. There's there's two things that come to mind. One um, was I mean, Glenn Dorsey's probably one of the most dominant sec or defensive lineman period that we've ever had in foot college football and um i, I think he only played a couple snaps because on the first play of the game first couple plays of the game our center and guards were so excited to block him that they they didn't communicate very well and they ended up both hitting him um one high and one low oh. and he as a top five pick and they, they swear they didn't do it on purpose. They were just so amped, and we were running the football that they just had to block him. And anyway, he, he he realized that his money was more important than playing against some crazy linemen that were gonna try to chop him up all day long. So that was that was that was good news for me because then he didn't have to play in the game. The bad news, um, the interception I threw uh, that cost us the game the pick six to Jonathan Zenon, he ended up being a free agent uh, with the New York Jets the very next year uh, when I was mm-hmm. on the team. And he told me what happened because I saw him walk in and I was like, oh, hell no, Get, you, you can leave. Um, <laughs> and uh, he, he, he was like, oh, he's like, man, anybody would have picked it off. Uh, it's my <laughs> Making it worse. I, he, yeah, I was like, oh, so, yeah, show your work on that. And he, uh, he said that less miles – so normally when you signal plays at the line of scrimmage, 
you say you signal the teleprotection first, um, all that kind of stuff, and then you go and you signal the routes last. Um, well, on that particular play, and I did it right, I think, every other time that year. On that play, I saw what I saw. I called a lot of my own plays. I signaled the pass play, and Les Miles had time to see me signal it and tell the corner who told the free safety, who told the other strong safety, who told the other corner all the way across the field. They ended up having time to communicate it, and you can see on the snap, he just jumped. As the ball snapped, I'm already raising up to throw it. It's a little quick hitch, and he's 13 yards off. Um, 13 yards off, and he's breaking on the ball. He knew it was coming. Gosh. That's a that real play, crappy that way to learn, that, to learn that. That play's tough, too, because the rub, as Gary Danielson said on the broadcast, he's like, the rub route was right there, and you can't throw that ball in that spot. And I'm thinking to myself, like, I don't know, like, yeah, it looks like, it looks like a tough read for you in that spot. But at the same time, I mean, just made an incredible play on the ball. And in that spot, like, that was obviously really important. You would hope that your receiver was going to make a play, and that ultimately didn't happen. Yeah, and I think the, the, the toughest part, the toughest part about all of it is um, I did it right every other time. Every other time I did it right. You know, and that, that one time I did, and it cost, uh, cost us an SEC championship game. Um, I still hear about it, not just doing a, a, a podcast interview, but my buddies still, I'll get random text messages. Throw any pick sixes today? Like, really? What? Dang, what? Name oh, names. Oh, brutal. If you want me to say something, I will. Oh. You can send me whatever you want. You're, I like okay. it. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, you know, I, this season for y'all, it was it was a pretty crazy year up and down. Like we, we've talked about this with with Hester, obviously. And like 2007 uh, as a whole was just you know nothing but chaos in college football. What was what was this season like with the ups and downs of Tennessee? Obviously, you have this big win against Georgia, um, you know, in South Carolina, stuff like that. And then you get to the SEC championship game. Take us through what the season was like uh, with the ups and downs for y'all as well. Yeah, I mean, it was tough. You know, that, that, that year we played Florida at Florida and just got hammered. And that was uh, one game, two games after we went to Cal. Um, we played the Cal team at Tennessee the year before when they had Marshawn Lynch and Deshaun Jackson. And they, they were just stacked. And we, we whipped them. Uh, we went out there the next year and we lost a lot on defense. And we, we, just, we, we couldn't stop their receivers. And uh, so we started the season one and two, actually, 0 and one in the SEC, and one and two overall. And we were able to win enough of the rest of the games to to win the East um, that particular year. Georgia, the only the only bright spot in me throwing a pick six and LSU going on to win a national championship is if I don't throw that and we win the championship, um, Georgia that year probably was playing for a championship. Bravo. Mm. Nobody so, wants that. De facto, I kept Georgia from winning their own their only championship uh, since 1980. So that's that's the that's the bright side. That deserves that a holiday. A, what, what a spin zone! That is that is incredible. <laughs> uh, Eric, we know uh, we know you gotta you gotta get running here. But is there anything else that kind of stands out about that game where you look back? And I'm sure that's not a game that you want to be able to to replay. But still, is there is there something that kind of sticks out with that game that you'll always remember, just kind of being able to experience that day and knowing what was at stake? I mean, I just I played that whole entire year with a snap. I snapped my pinky finger in half and dislocated oh, yeah. it. It was touching the back of my palm. 
three days before our first game. And I played all year with it, and by doing that, ended up getting hooked on the stuff that you have to take to, to, to do something like that, um, unfortunately. And it's very common in sports, but I, I just remember at, after the game just being devastated because no, the last thing you ever want to do is lose a game for for your teammates. I mean, it wasn't even about me at that point. I was just uh, so down. And Coach Fulmer and his wife, Vicky came over and gave me a hug and said, we would never have been here if it wasn't for you. You know, it's a crappy way to end it. But, you know, they just were very appreciative of, of what they had watched me do to play for the team all year long. And the yeah, fact that I'm... we were even there. So the ball over 500 times too in a year I think you've done you've done your part to try and to try and get that team uh, to that stage um, you definitely did a lot for that team in 2007 no doubt about it uh, Eric really appreciate you hopping on uh, wish you the best of luck with all your your radio stuff that you got going on and uh, we're gonna have to get you yeah. back on to talk like some actual football during the year whenever you want I'm around awesome appreciate it man talk soon see you guys Definitely going to have to get Eric back on, talking a little bit more in depth. He was pretty limited on, on time as well, so we're going to have to get him back on during the season, talking some actual Vols stuff. Fingers crossed that we have a midseason to, to be talking about. Yes, yes, for sure. Um, should we do the like the fun little peel behind the onion on that, how awkward that was for me? Oh, at the end of that conversation? Yeah, yeah. go ahead. So and this is not going to shock anyone because of what's been going on with our um, audio lately, but my, I don't know if it was the phone or if it was the w- the equipment or whatever, something cut out right as he went into the stuff with the addiction stuff. And I like, you guys know me and I've talked about 2013 enough that I, I'm not going to judge anyone who had who struggled with that kind of stuff, but I didn't hear it. And so I just heard the comment about how like his buddies kind of give him a hard time about, you know, throwing the pick six. And so we get off the phone and, uh, and I'm, I text Connor, I was like, man, that got kind of dark, huh? And I meant because his friends were being jerks. I was like, what is that about? Yeah. And he's like, yeah, you know, it's great that he was, you know, open about that stuff. And I was like, open about what? I missed that entire part of the, and I, honestly, I can't think of a, a, a time I've ever been more thankful that I didn't say anything. Because, mm. you know, me, which is, I mean, that's saying a lot, to be honest, because <laughs> I, I'm shocked that I didn't come back on. I was like, all right, Eric, that's, that's great. Always love to hear it. And then just move on from there. So, yeah. Yeah, I was I was surprised. I was waiting for the, the comments from from you to be able to interject with something after that, and then it didn't didn't come. But I, I don't yeah. think anybody Same, bro. To, I don't think anybody that listening to that would have been able to pick up on that. That's why we That's give the, the peels yeah. behind the onion. Craig Stelts, the LSU safety, first team All SEC guy, first team All American when it came to hair, in my opinion. Great flow. That is some all-time good flow. And it still got better when he got to the NFL, too. Like, it was still kind of in its beginning stages yeah. when he got to LSU. But an animal on the field. Over 200 tackle, or over 100 tackles this season and six interceptions. I say this all the time when we do these games. I always feel like the role of the safety in college football, and probably the NFL, too, has just changed so much yeah. that it's so hard to picture in 2020 with all the restrictions on, on hits and targeting calls and all that stuff, and really all the responsibility now that comes down to, to coverage and how much that's emphasized as well from the safety position. It's so hard to envision a, a year in which a guy could have over 100 tackles and six interceptions at the same time. Yeah, I mean, that's he would crazy. I'm assuming if you had that stat line now, it would be like, Six interceptions, 100 tackles, and at least 14 targeting penalties. 
Yes. Oh, no doubt. Without a doubt. No doubt. No doubt. But he was fantastic, yeah. Very, very good player. I think he's still boys with Hester, I'm pretty sure, too. Um, Glenn Dorsey, the LSU defensive tackle who was a monster for so much of this season. And he is one of the first defensive linemen that I remember watching as a college football fan. Keep in mind, I'm 16, 17 years old yeah. at, at the time. That He's one of the first defensive linemen that I remember watching and looking out for and being like, oh, that guy's taking over the game right now. Yeah. Like he, he's doing stuff that you don't see defensive linemen do, rushing the passer, being able to get into the face of the quarterback and do all those different things. There's a reason why he won basically every non-Heisman trophy possible for a right. defender i mean just unbelievable year but unfortunately the tailbone injury that he was working <sighs> through in this game we got to see so little of him in this game and that bummed me out he just wasn't as good down the stretch after the chop lock that he was a victim to in that auburn game and it showed because he just did not have that same sort of get off and if you just put the side by side of september glenn dorsey versus november glenn dorsey Oh man, that's tough. I mean, the the get off like because this became a, a constant thing they would show before every game, you know, like like here's George, he's warming up, like he's he says he's going to give it a go or whatever it would be, and you could just tell there's just there wasn't as much explosion. It was it was tough, and also, is this bad that like when I when I first I didn't remember it was against uh, Auburn like his injury that happened. Is it bad that when I heard that my first thought was like I can't believe Nick Fairley did that. That is bad. That okay. is bad. Wait, sure. why would why would Nick Fairley do that? They're not playing him. Nick Fairley was like king of cheap shots, even though he only played defensive line and also yeah, he's four defensive years lineman. Later, so yeah. yeah, logistics of that not not great, but yeah. Um, Ryan Perilu, the LSU quarterback, in my opinion, the single most intriguing character of this game. Yeah, starting in place for the injured Matt Flynn, who was out with a with a shoulder injury, but it was still a mystery up until that first series that LSU came out for. Was it going to be Ryan Paralu? Was it going to be Andrew Hatch? Hadn't played much uh, in the the previous five games. Hadn't even attempted a pass in the previous five games. Why was Ryan Paralu such a big deal? Well. Before college football recruiting really, really took off nationally, and I understand that in the SEC and in places like Texas and right. stuff, recruiting has always been a big deal. I'm not denying any of that. But before recruiting really got nationally, Ryan Paraloo was a huge, huge deal. Such a highly regarded, talked about recruit. And LSU fans have been waiting for this moment. He's in year three in Baton Rouge. There's this great SB Nation profile that was written about Ryan Perilou a few years back, and it, it, it made me sad, I'll be honest. It really made yeah. me sad. Because you read about you know how he was supposed to be the next Vince Young. He flipped from Texas to LSU on signing day because Vince Young was coming back to, to college. And this whole Ryan Perilou, I don't want to say ammo against him, but that's, that's ultimately what it became in a lot of different ways, some of which was self-induced. It's It all kind of began on this signing day mm-hmm. where, you know, he infamously said on signing day, Jamarcus who? And that that quote out of context really made the rounds. And in pre-Twitter yeah, that quote times... quote in context is still bad, but yes, yes. Yeah, but what, what needs to be remembered about a quote like that was that he was actually asked about competing with Jamarcus Russell for the starting job at LSU. Keep in mind, this is after Jamarcus Russell was a 50% passer coming off his redshirt freshman year. He was not the Jamarcus Russell who became the number one overall pick. He was still very much an unknown for a wide variety of college football fans. And you also had the quote about Ryan Perlou saying that he he wanted to 
who wanted to try and win four Heismans when he just said, yeah, I'm going to try and win the Heisman Trophy every year, which is why kind of not? a, well, yeah, why would you not try and, try and do something like that? But Yeah, it, it's, it's, first off, this makes me feel extremely old. But also, it's, it's hard to really put, like, if, if you are younger especially or you don't remember, like, like, how recruiting used to be, because there was some of the biggest recruits we've ever seen at, like, like even now, like in like the all time list and stuff like that, and like the all time rankings, you have like Vince Young, Reggie Bush. I mean, Joe McKnight coming out was, was Gosh, huge. RIP. Um, yeah, for real. But like you had so many really good players, and you then you had this guy who was like, I, I mean, not better than all of them by any means, but he was up there with like this guy was going to be a difference maker. And yeah, the Jamarcus quote, not great. I don't think he should have made it, but he had so much potential. And I hate using that word because it's usually used in negative context, but he had so much potential. Les Miles apparently talked to him into coming into LSU and playing in this pro-style offense and said, that's going to be your better ticket to the NFL. Keep in mind, at the time, you know what? That's not entirely wrong, given the way that we talked about offenses in 2005. Very, very different than the way that we talk about offenses in 2020, but you can't help but wonder what would his path have been had he gone to a place like Texas that would have been a little bit more willing to use his skill set, and you sort of see some of those elements play out this game, where they really right. want to keep him kind of contained, and they don't want to necessarily let him run wild. He got suspended for the 2007 Bama game. Mm-hmm. So, again, this is his third year in Baton Rouge, and that was, again, after wrong place, wrong time. There was a, a fight that broke out at the varsity in the parking lot. He was involved in it. Apparently he didn't start it, but he was involved in it. So after this SEC championship game, which he gets to start and he gets to win for LSU, spoiler alert, he gets two snaps in the national title game, which was completely out of nowhere. Was expecting yeah. to have a much different role, even with Matt Flynn back healthy. Then that offseason, he's entering his fourth year at school where he's finally going to be the guy. And there's a lot of quotes later on that we're going to talk about that that suggest, and everybody kind of thought and was ready for that, for Ryan Perilou. Mm-hmm. But then he starts missing meetings, starts missing workouts, tested positive for a banned substance, and that was the last straw. What gets a little bit lost in the shuffle, and this isn't an excuse or anything like that, but easy to kind of forget, this was someone who, he had a daughter born two months premature, was dealing with a lot of that, was dealing with a a lot lot of different things on his plate that a 20, 21-year-old kid would have really struggled with in a lot of different situations, and he was someone who admittedly did not always make the best choices, but you know, transfers to Jacksonville State, ends up being an undrafted guy, and just like that, Oh, and you also had the incident, by the way, where before 2007, he got caught using his brother's ID at a riverboat casino, which, right. Mar- Marler, something you would I mean, consider? all I for mean, riverboat gambling. I'm I just huge, huge fan of that. I mean, you know, like he, he admitted that he made some bad choices, but it's, it's a shame. And you're watching this game thinking that this is the beginning of something great, mm-hmm. and instead it ends up being the end of something that's kind of sad. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a very good way to put it, too. It was, um, I mean, it's easy, especially now, people, it's almost like people love to see the downfall of people now. Um, at the time, I, I don't think that was really the case. It's just, it, it's a really sad, sad story, man. It just, and it, about a kid that, again, I don't think I would have ever said the thing about Jamarcus. That was not your best look. But at the same time, I think it's a kid that was, was way more influenced from negative people in his circle than, than his own decision-making at, at, at times. 
we were able to talk to, to Hester about that briefly. Something that's a little bit still a sore subject and you can kind of tell um, somebody that, that he is, you know, had a lot of respect for obviously as well. But let's go to our interview with our boy, Jacob Hester. We're now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is the grittiest former LSU running back that we know, <laughs> Jacob Hester. Hester, I, I thought that Marler and I loved you as much as anyone, and that includes your wife and four boys, by the way. Um, but then I rewatched this game, and I heard Gary Danielson speak about you. And I'm going to be honest, I, I think he loves you more than we do. Please please tell me that Gary gives you a bear hug every <laughs> single time he sees you. Uh, well, yeah, I do see him, I guess, uh, pretty often around the SEC, and I always try to catch up with him. But, hey, it's not a bad thing to have the announcers on your side because you know there's probably been some times they're wondering okay why is this guy in it running back for lsu so if you can get one and you can trick one to get on your side then you for sure try to get him every single game i mean he is like he he gushed about you especially so this happened right after the first play because the first play from scrimmage for lsu which i'm sure you remember all too well of this game 2007 sec championship where what you did to poor brent vincent it was just rude, oh. and I, I'm not sure that he ever recovered from this. Did you say anything to him after you just completely trucked him? All right, so uh, this, this kind of came up not too long ago because we were actually re-watching the game with some of my former teammates, and we were doing a TV special on it. It was me and, and Richard Dixon and, and uh, Matt Flynn, and we had a lot of fun with this first play because – Actually, the whole week, you know, we put in these ISO plays just for Tennessee, and we worked on them so many times. But a lot of times in football, you work on a play, and you do it so many times in practice, and it looks good on paper. But then you get in the game, and the coach never calls them, right? And it's like, man, why did we work all this week on this play? Well, it wasn't the case in, in this instance. I mean, we ran it from the very first play. It was a simple ISO play, but I remember getting the ball, and it was kind of like, okay – here we go. A gaps wide open. Fullback did his job, and I, I remember the moment running and thinking, uh, you know, this defensive back's coming right for me, so he's coming to try to get uh, a hit on me. And um, it, it's one of the few plays that that I can remember, um, kind of the force <laughs> of the play. And he hit the ground extremely fast. And in the moment, yep. it was a lot of times like you, you don't even you don't really realize those those you know how big of a hit is you know right when it happens but that one you kind of you kind of knew and the year before um we played at tennessee and there was a lot of trash talk there was a ton of trash talk uh between the two teams and it, it, you know it wasn't too bad that's the game uh if y'all remember i've, I've told y'all this story before but my helmet came off and the linebacker said shouldn't you be playing for air force right <laughs> and so yeah, i don't, I don't know if y'all remember that yeah yeah, and so, like, what, you know, what do you do, um, you know, how do you come back from that, right? I mean, I have no <laughs> comeback for that. I mean, I think I even, like, smiled and laughed and, like, dapped him up because I'm like, man, that's a really good that's one cold. right there. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, so, I, you know, I, I think I said something cheesy, like the service academies are coming to play today or something, probably <laughs> like that. I, you know, I don't know. But I, I remember from, from the get-go, like, that first play, it just restarted all of the trash talk. And uh, it never really stopped that game. I love it. I love it. I grew more and more frustrated as I watched Ryan Paralu in this game, but not necessarily because of anything that he did. 
It was because the game plan for him seemed so centered around making sure that he doesn't lose the game and doesn't do anything to hurt LSU. And understanding that this is his second start or, or whatever, but you know, even the way that they talked about him on the broadcast with your father Gary Danielson, you know, <laughs> you, you would have thought that the guy was like it, they made it seem like the guy was playing in his first football game. And I get that he's making his second career start, but dude was a third-year player and he's the former top quarterback recruit in the country. And I guess the game plan worked because, I mean, y'all won, but I thought there should have been more of an effort for him to attack downfield. Is, is that a fair criticism, realizing that if he had been attacking more downfield, that would have been less work for you? Yeah, and like I mentioned, uh, this game's kind of fresh in my memory because we, we, we just kind of broke it down. And offensively, we didn't play great, uh, I'll be honest with you. And the game plan... Uh, was pretty small because we did have, uh, you know, Ryan and only his second start. And, you know, it does get frustrating at times when your defense is playing lights out like they were and you have a a game plan that, you know, only really involves plays that they're comfortable with Ryan running. And uh, you mentioned, I mean, right, you've been there a while. You're an older player, even though it's only your second start. I would have loved to open it up just a little bit more, uh, you know, but to – you know, back the coaches up a little bit. Um, uh, there was times in that game where some of us had to, you know, take control of the huddle, try to help Ryan through that situation, maybe, you know, call some of the plays. And so um, we, you know, during the week had hopes that Flynn was going to be able to make it. Uh, I believe it was a shoulder that Matt had. And, mm-hmm. you know, you know, when you're, when your starter is probable and you're trying to get him to play, well, sometimes that backup can't get all the attention. That backup can't get a bulk of the reps. And so it was a very limited playbook. And, uh, you know, I can see you even watching the game and wondering, okay, what's going on here? And the defense, like I mentioned, did play lights out. But it was a very, you know, we put in a couple of runs. There was a couple of play-action passes. There wasn't a lot to that game plan because, really, we thought, okay, there's a chance, you know, Flynn's going to be able to play. So some of the practices, some of the walkthroughs, let's try to get Matt some of these reps. And it really, uh, it, it's when you go back and you watch it, especially knowing what we had that year with Gary Croton and, and what our offense was, it's one of those offensive performances. And you're like, okay, I never want to watch that again. Let's throw that right. game <laughs> in the trash can. Because, I mean, it was. It, it was it was a bad offensive performance, and the defense really bailed us out. Do you have yeah, a I mean, – Go ahead. Sorry, sorry. I was, I was, I want to piggyback off of that just because Ryan Perilou, I think, is just super, super interesting. Do you, do you have an interesting Ryan Perilou story that kind of stands out? Maybe one that you're able to tell um, on these airwaves. Well, I think we all know how talented Ryan truly was. I mean, Ryan was a guy that was the top quarterback in the country. Everybody wanted him. He could make all the throws. He even, you know, spent a couple of years on some NFL practice squads, even after transferring and going to Jacksonville State. So. He's an extremely talented guy, and I can say this. I know a lot of people point to, you know, Ryan getting in trouble and doing different things. Um, Ryan Perlew himself was actually a, a, a good, good kid, a good uh, teammate. He just, you know, surrounded himself with, with some people that had their interest at heart and not his best interest, and I think that's really where all of that came from. And so anytime you have that scenario, it's, it makes it even more sad because you could sit there and you could talk to Ryan all day long and uh, very intelligent and all those things, right? And then you surround yourself with people that want you to do stuff for them and not for yourself, and then that's where you get in trouble. 
Professor, I couldn't help but uh, laugh earlier. No offense. Um, when you said less miles in this in this limited playbook or limited offensive playbook, I got a limited offensive playbook with less miles. I can't even imagine how how long that would be. Um, but so my question is this, and we we talked about this before. This 2007 season is one of the best seasons in college football history. It was crazy chaotic and, and so many upsets all year. Talk about a team like being able to weather the storm that that y'all had, you know, with with two losses and still get into the national championship game and win the national championship. Did it mean even more at the end of the season to have a team like that that was able to kind of get through all those obstacles and adversity? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I, I do talk about the playbook because at that point, really, you know, before I think the next season's really when you saw Les's playbook kind of change. But before that, I mean, we were a team that. So. We were in 11 personnel a lot. We were moving the ball down the field. We had a veteran quarterback in Flynn that they trusted, and we were doing a lot of things. Um, you know, the year before in 06, uh, it's crazy to even think before this last season, but, you know, at running back, I caught 35 passes. The next year, I think Dixon at tight end caught 35 passes, and, you know, that went away for a long time uh, after, I, I think, the 2008 season. So up until that point, we actually were an offense that was creative and we were spreading the football. Now, of course, we'd still, you know, get an eye formation and getting 21 personnel and run the football, but I think it was more open than people realized. And so that game, we, we did kind of go back to what a lot of LSU fans would probably, you know, recognize from 08 until whenever. So, but, you know, to that point, I thought we, you know, we had Gary Croton, who was at BYU and Louisiana Tech and really opened it up a little bit. I can I can promise you when Jimbo was there as our offense coordinator, you know, before that, I mean, it was his plays, it was his playbook, it was his formation. So, um, surprisingly, we did open it up a little bit. But kind of going back to the 07 season, I, yeah, I mean, I think when you look at all the obstacles and you look at the only two lost national champion, and you talk about both games you lost that were in triple overtime, and you remember the wins you had against Florida and Auburn and, uh, Alabama, and then the way you beat Virginia Tech at the beginning of the season, and uh, you know they they end up going to the Orange Bowl, and you know you beat them by forty in, in that season. So I, I think that you know it's obviously when you start talking about national championships, that that team we're never going to be talked about uh, like the twenty nineteen team, and I and I'm a full believer in the twenty nineteen LSU team being the best college team I've ever seen, but we have a place in history, and I think it's a unique place in history, and. Um, when you get together with your teammates and you start talking about that season, it was a lot of fun because, you know, not not every team gets a plane ride where they're heading home from the SEC championship game thinking there's no shot we get into the national championship. And by the time you land from Atlanta to Baton Rouge, you know you're going to get into the national championship. And so there's so many memories from that year and the craziness and thank God for LaShawn McCoy and, and all those types <laughs> of deals. You know, um, looking back at this season, especially, I, I'll just take you back to just you know, twenty-one-year-old Chris uh, in Milledgeville, Georgia, just getting his heart broken several times. That he talked about the Bama game and somehow John Parker Wilson fumbling off of Dorsey's foot uh, in the final minutes. The Auburn game for me, um, I believe it was this season where y'all there's like six seconds left and y'all threw to the end zone and scored a touchdown. Um, and I think there's only a second left on the clock remaining when it was all said and done. And I remember the interview afterwards, uh, Les Miles, they asked me, they said, you know, that was kind of, you know, were you worried that you were not going to have enough time and you're going to run out of time that, like, you know, wouldn't be able to tip the field goal? And he said, no, we just wanted to kick their ass. And it was one of my favorite <laughs> moments from a coach in interview history. Um, and that being said, 
this game, it's an SEC championship, but it looks like from the season, especially, where would this even rank uh, in terms of your favorite games from that season? Oh, that's a great question. It, that game kind of gets forgotten about a little mm -hmm. bit because I think there's so many other moments in that 07 season. Of course, the Florida game is the one that everybody wants to point to. But, yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, uh, you know, Auburn comes in, and they're, of course, they're a ranked football team, and it's in Death Valley. It's one of the great atmospheres. And I believe when we broke the huddle, I could be wrong. You know, there's around 14 seconds left, but, you know, the clock's ticking down. And within our offense, and really any college offense at that time, you know, you didn't, as a quarterback, like, you didn't change too much. Like, you weren't going to audible into something different, or you weren't going to change, you know, what you were doing. And, you know, nowadays that, that's more common because you got the spread offense. But back then, it just didn't happen. But I remember breaking the huddle and, you know, Will Muschamp, who we all knew very well because he was – uh, our defense coordinator when we all first got to LSU, well, he was the D.C. obviously at Auburn. And when we came out and we saw what defense he was playing and we knew exactly what blitz they were going to run, I remember looking at Flynn. His eyes are huge. And we had never had split backs really all, all season long, not even in shotgun, but we were under the center. And me and Sean Jordan are in the game. I'm a tailback. He's a fullback. And Flynn says, hey, they're bringing this blitz, y'all getting split backs. That way you're not in eye formation, and Hester has enough time to step up and, and get this guy before, uh, you know, he gets to me. I mean, said it as calm as, as you've ever heard, and then looks up and sees D-Bird is going to be on one-on-one -on -one coverage, and he's, he's almost giddy. You know, like when you know something good's about to happen, and you almost mess it up because you're just so giddy, and you're almost like giggly, and <laughs> you, you just want to hurry up, and you just want it to just take place before it actually happens. Well, that was Matt in this play, and he's like, Looking at us, he's got this grin on his face. He's like, hey, split backs, hey, you can pick up the splits. He looks up, sees the bird, and then it just all happened so fast. But it was there was this calmness about it from Flynn. And so if your quarterback's going to be calm in that situation, you don't really have to worry about it. And sure enough, he called out the blitz. Well, here they come. I pick up the guy coming in the A-gap. Sean picks up the guy off the edge. Matt does a really nice job of staying in the pocket, one-on-one -on -one coverage, and there you go. You score, you look up, and – if if there was review, there might be two, maybe three seconds left, but right. regardless, right, there was seconds left. And you kind of look up and you're like, did we really just do that? <laughs> that might be the dumbest thing we've ever done, but I'll think it was awesome. if it didn't work. Hester, wasn't there a story about y'all like nearly dying on the plane ride home after the SEC championship? I feel like you've told us that, but if 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 I'm correct me if I'm wrong there, wasn't there like no. the plane the plane just <laughs> dropped out of the sky no. or something like that after this game? Oh, so you know you know when you're on a plane like any kind of turbulence like you get kind of get uncomfortable with, but yeah, it was one of those drops, and you don't have those drops in a, in a commercial, you know, big. Uh, plane. It's not like it's a, a crop duster or something like that. And it just dropped. And it dropped for a good three seconds. And in a big Ooh. plane, that's a very long time. And um, yeah, that that was something that kind of tried to kill the boot of us going uh, to the national championship. But um, so Glenn Dorsey, who is, in my opinion, one of the best defensive players in our conference history, right? What? Well, the thing about Glenn. Are you laughing at Glenn Dorsey being one? No, of the no, I just players? said that exact same thing right before you came on. I was on. wondering why you were like, laughing. Verbatim, like, I said it, the exact same thing to Connor before you came on. Okay, see, see, there you go. <laughs> Something you said was extremely smart, Marla. I'm proud of you. <laughs> I am too. I appreciate no. that. I, I got to put this on the fridge. <laughs> 
Oh, uh, I thought we were about to have a debate. I was like, oh, I'll go on, on this debate. No, but I, so obviously, right? I mean, terrorized offenses and was so good and, you know, finished in the top 10 in the Heisman voting. But he was terrified of flying. Absolutely oh, terrified. In fact, his first his first ever flight, our first road game in 04, we came in the same year together. It was the first time that Glenn Dorsey had ever gotten on a plane because he was from the Baton Rouge area. He didn't take any of his visits. He knew he was going to LSU, so he had never flown before in his life. And I forget where we were going. I think it was, you know, maybe going to Athens to play Georgia. And you've never seen someone more nervous in your life. I mean, he was sweating from the time that we got on the plane. I mean, we're not even like to the point where they're making you buckle your seat belts. You're not even having to put your tray tables up and he is sweating. He's white knuckled onto both armrests and he is like pushed back into his seat. I'm pretty sure he was saying the Lord's prayer. And of <laughs> course, being the great teammates that we are, as soon as we start taking off, me and Tyson Jackson grab his seat and we start shaking it oh, whenever we come off the ground. And oh my gosh, I, I've never seen someone so terrified and lose all the color from that like exact moment because he was about to throw up. And oh man, it, it was great. So going fast forward, you think he's gotten over that because you know we've played four years at LSU, we've taken all these flights. When that plane dropped. Everybody oh. looked to see where Glenn Dorsey was, <laughs> and he was right back in the same scenario, white knuckled, pushed back in his seat, lost all of his color because he was about to throw up. Uh, and so that's that's the moment that I, I might remember more about Glenn than anything was him on that plane and the look he had in that seat. I just can't help but keep thinking where this conversation would have gone if I was if I was saying that Glenn Dorsey was overrated or, or something of the sort. Nope. Um, for, uh, for him, but it, no, he was, it, a, he was incredible. Man. Yeah, well, you know me as a Bama fan. That guy ruined that entire the end of that game. Uh, like he like not single handedly, but I mean he had that fumble with uh, with John Mark Wilson. Like you know, like Bama's up seven, and then you lose by seven in a matter of three minutes. It was it was an incredible season, honestly. Like yeah. looking back at it for for y'all the entire year. Um, last question I have here is the morning of this game, okay, and I'm sure you've been asked this before. I, I remember this just – it was so perfect and, and just so 2007 to a T because of all the, the crazy weirdness that was happening. We hear that morning, uh, Kirk Herbstreit says that Les Miles was taking the Michigan job. How did all of that unfold within your locker room? How did that affect you all beforehand? All right, so I remember watching the TV. We're sitting there, and Flynn and I – were uh, in my hotel room and we were, you know, going over the game plan, whatever it might have been, and trying to, you know, do things you do in the morning of, of any game. And it comes across the TV, you know, Coach Miles going to Michigan. But I can, I can. This is this is an honest take. I knew, and, and Matt, we kind of said the same thing. If he would have taken the Michigan job, we would have already known about it because that's just the way that Les is built. Um, we had a unity council. We all met every single week and, you know, there was players from each position. And I mean, in those meetings, everything was discussed. And so for us, we felt like if there was any possible truth to it, then he would have at least had the conversation. And I'll be honest with you. I mean, if, if he would have gone back to his alma mater and he would have, you know, taken that job, it's, it's one of the, the, the jobs that, you know, you have to say, okay, well, man, I want you to stay at LSU, but that's where you played football. That's, you know, you have a legacy there. And if he would have taken that job, then I would have understood it. I mean, I would have been disappointed. 
I mean, y'all know what I think of, of Coach Miles. But um, even then, we knew that it wasn't going to be true because he would have had that conversation with us. And, I mean, really soon after all of that broke, I mean, we uh, had a conversation with him, and he let us know that there was no truth to it and, and all these different things. And so it really didn't last as long just because he quickly made sure that all of the team leaders kind of knew where he stood. And then we kind of, you know, would tell, like I would go tell the running backs and Matt was telling the quarterbacks and Stelz was telling the safeties. And so it really wasn't as big of a distraction as it probably could have been. Fair. And they got Rich Rodriguez, so it all worked out. Perfectly, perfectly fine hire. Nothing (laughs) wrong with that. Uh, Hester, last question for you, and maybe as important of a question as you'll get about this 2007 SEC championship. Um, we asked this to CD, and it produced just a gem of an answer <laughs> in ways that only CD could could answer it. Um, I got to imagine, you know, even though at the time you were engaged, right? At, at the time of this game, you got engaged your senior year, correct? Uh, I was married. Yeah, I was married. 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 Okay, so casual. Yeah, I was married. No big deal. Just standard <laughs> college kid married. Um, I got to imagine, though, after a game like this, and especially after you guys find out you're going to the national championship, there was a Baton Rouge establishment that was blessed with your presence. What was that Baton Rouge establishment? All right, Sue. So y'all are listening to me being married, and y'all are thinking, okay, well, the guy probably just went home. It probably went to, you know, Chili's and had a couple of cold pops, and that was just the craziness (laughs) of his night. When, in fact, uh, that is not... The, the case but it was a Sunday it was a so what we did okay so coming back and you know playing the game and, and the plane ride and all that deal whatever you know it's it's late when you get home and I'm sure we had fun but the bigger party was after we found out we were going to the national championship but yeah. here's the problem it was on a Sunday mm-hmm. okay so even in, even in a college town on a Sunday as late as we found out we were going to it because we kind of stayed that we're like look we're going to get to the natty. We're going to, we're going to party. And not really thinking, okay, it's Sunday. Everything's going to be closed. But so my wife and a couple of her friends, they found a spot across the river in Port Allen, Louisiana. Yes. Uh, very industrial town, oil refineries, all these type deals. And she's like, hey, there's one roughneck bar open in Port Allen. It's Sunday night, but they're open. I've told them, hey, we got the team coming. And so we we went across the river, and we went to the biggest hole-in-the-wall bar that you've ever seen. But I'll be damned. We tried to drink every beer brewed in Port Allen that <laughs> night, and we had we had a hell of a time. And it ended up being even better because, if you you know, they had one section of people that probably went there all the time, and then you had another section that was nothing but the football team, right, and, and people who hung out with them. And so it was cool because – you know, nobody was bothering us. Nobody was talking football. It was just us. And we all had, like, you know, our team gear on because we went straight from the meeting, finding out we were going to the Natty, to this, you know, Roughneck Bar in Port Allen. And it, it, it was an outstanding time. Um, and luckily, we knew somebody in Port Allen that had a, a camp, right? They, they had a camp that was right there. So, they came and picked us up. We didn't have to worry about because it wasn't, wasn't a lot of Ubers back then. They picked us up in shifts and take us to this spot. We all wake up the next morning, go home. It was a hell of a time. And, you know, luckily we were able to find someone, uh, you know, that was open for us to be able to celebrate. Well, hold up Love real it. quick. Hester, you went out drinking in your team gear? In my what? In your, like in your team, like your, like your, your yeah, like the team gear, like, like your, like your, 
LSU sweats and everything like that? The team issued stuff? Oh, I think it was like a national championship T-shirt or something. Like we're going to oh, the man. ship or something. Yeah, <laughs> I'm I'm pretty sure. I mean, hey, we weren't going home and changing. And I let's see, I was I was 22 years old already, so I, I wasn't worried about anything. Yeah, I was good. I didn't fair. care what I had on. I was celebrating. Just a 22 year old married man, just out for a night out of town. Can't blame me on that one. That's Can't right. Blame me. That's right. Now, That's now I'm sure CD would have done it a little bit different. I'm sure <laughs> CD would have. You know, had bottle service in Gainesville. Yep. If, if, yeah. know, if that's something that was that was possible back in '94, uh, I'm I'm not really sure. But uh, yeah, Dorian probably had a little bit different of a story. But for a married guy, I think my night out in Port Allen, Louisiana, was pretty good. It was Love good. It. Yeah, I like that. Very nice, Hester. This has been fun. Um, we are going to have to hopefully get you back on here talking about actual football stuff real soon, like 2020 football stuff. So. I'm sure we'll be in touch, and uh, yeah, be well. Yeah, look, I'm ready for that as as much as anyone. I I hope next time I'm on here, I can debate Marla because five (laughs) top five SEC players all play for Alabama, and we're arguing. What are you talking about? I spent four hours last night making this graphic for Coach Orgeron and his his record against top ten teams. Thank you, and it looks hideous. <laughs> See, that's what I'm talking about. I'm just ready for some good back and forth with Marla. That's good, man. I'm very ready soon. for it too. Very, very soon. Hester, we'll be in touch, man. Talk soon. All right, fellas. Talk to you soon. All right, take care. Appreciate Hester for coming on. He was, I mean, he, he rallied. He, he had celebrated his anniversary the previous night, I know. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a champion right there. Hester is always always so good, so reliable in those circumstances for it. Great, great to be able to hear from him. Breakout performers. Um, Eric Berry, Tennessee safety. Breakout performer? What are you talking about? This dude was, was an all-SEC player, two-time unanimous All-American. At the time, he's only a true freshman in this game. Had an interception, had a fumble recovery, and he was, like I said, second-team All-SEC this year, 86 tackles, more of a breakout year per se, but still kind of figuring out how good this guy is going to be. And oh boy, he was darn good. I mean, not a lot of players get to have a rap song made after them. True. I mean, Eric Eric Berry, fantastic song. Uh, yeah, he was, he was awesome. Well, that's why Kelly did his own song though. That's True. not True. as cool. So, but yeah, incredible player. And it is weird to think about like. One, I always forget when he was there because he was just like a just a dominant staying power, I feel like, or a force like every year that he mm-hmm. played. Um, but yeah, as only a freshman, but still, like in a lot of the ways, LSU fans will appreciate this, I'm sure. In a lot of the ways, Honey Badger was, was a playmaker. Oh, yeah. He didn't impact the game as much, you know, from like a special team standpoint, I don't think. Um, had a, I think not, he had a year or two where he was returning kicks and punts and he? stuff like that. was really, really good sense. at it, yeah. I mean, he's just, he's an incredible, but I mean, also like the way Honey Badger did, like as like a gunner or as somebody like, oh, yeah, you know, on, on kickoffs stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's just an incredible, incredible athlete. And just one, one, like, from Fairburn, Georgia. Oh, people know. forget yeah. that. Something that's different right. in the water down there. That's what that's I always what, say. That's what they always say. Such an inspiring story, too. Obviously, everybody knows what, what he became in the NFL, which was one of the players of the decade in the 2010s, despite the fact that he overcame Hodgkin's lymphoma mm-hmm. and has is going to be an NFL, a pro football Hall of Famer. There's no doubt in, in my mind. Yep. Prominent extras. Bo Pelini, LSU defensive coordinator. Ironically enough, the last game 
that he was LSU defensive coordinator. Actually, did he was LSU defensive coordinator in the national championship too, yeah. I believe. But this is before he gets right before he gets the Nebraska job, and it's reported at the time that it's likely going to happen. People forget that Bo Pelini coached three consecutive defenses that finished in the top three in total defense. That is ridiculous. That is a hard thing to do. Bo Pelini, especially with defensive line talent, in a three-year stretch, he got to coach Glenn Dorsey and Indomitian Sue, who, in, in terms of defensive linemen who could take over the sport, I mean, you're talking those guys, you're talking Chase Young. I think those guys are even a different class than a Miles Garrett. If you ask oh, yeah. Me. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, one of the things about that, too, is because on the first time we recorded this, I, I made the, <laughs> the comp to, um, what do you call it, to Sue and, and Dorsey, because not just from the way they impacted games and, and how dominant they were, but from a physical standpoint, just like the brute strength. Imposing, I, yeah. I mean, obviously, those guys are, like, big and strong and muscular and all those kind of things, but it was just like this, I don't know how to say it besides just, like, grown man strength. I mean, just absolute, like, like I don't know, if you told me that Dorsey had never worked out, but he could, like, I don't know, bend, like, some sort of, like, rebar or, like, wrought mm-hmm. iron fence, like, I'd be like, yeah, of course he could. That, yep. that makes sense, yeah. Tyler Shelvin going to be the next Glenn Dorsey this year for, for LSU? Same number. Uh, yeah. Oh, people forget that. Yeah. Bo Pelini, though, coached quite a few really solid defenses. Interestingly enough, now that he is entering um, year, I guess you have to call it year one as LSU mm-hmm. defensive coordinator again? or I uh, guess, yeah. Year one, part two? I don't know. But He's got two guys um, that Cole Kubik had in his top five for interior de- defensive linemen in Neil the Farrell SEC. So. as well, I believe. No, it's the other one. Uh, was it Logan? Oh, that's right. Yeah, sorry. that's right. He has a lot of, he has a lot of a very talented defensive linemen. Whether going to the four three this year and, and and changing things around from the Dave Aranda era, I know Coach O has some very high expectations of Bo Pelini. As I've said, he expects LSU defense to be much better. Has yes. emphasized that a lot throughout the offseason. The other side, defensive coordinator, of course. You already know who it is. You don't need to ask. It's John the Don Chavis. Of course, he's John the Don. Unbelievable. It'd be weird if he wasn't in a game that we were doing. I guess, yeah. (laughs) Yes. Uh, David Cutcliffe, Tennessee offensive coordinator. This is his last year back at Tennessee before taking the Duke job, which is a weird thing to think about. I always forget that he's been at Duke for over a decade. That is nuts to me. That that is – had no idea it had been that long. One of the rare instances in which he's not coaching, what, like a Manning or a Clawson? Yeah. (laughs) Especially with how long he was there. Um, but that is one of the things. I don't want to give a spoiler alert, but I, I did not remember until going back and looking at this. Yes, yes. David Cutcliffe is a, kind of a tough – for whatever reason, I always have a tough time being like, wait, you were at which place at which time? I get the Ole Miss years mixed up a little right. bit unless I look it up. But uh, someone who was very, very respected on that Tennessee sideline, no doubt about it. Another guy respected on that Tennessee sideline. I'm talking about Matt Luke. Come on, Matt Luke. Come on, Matt Luke, head coach. Not quite. Head, head recruiting coordinator, Tennessee Balls. <laughs> Unreal. Offensive line coach, tight ends coach, recruiting coordinator. Dude did everything. 31-year-old did Matt all. Luke. Did it all, man. Did it all for the balls. <laughs> he was Cutcliffe's guy. I also I didn't realize that as much, that he's under that, how, how much he was associated with the Cutcliffe coaching tree because he brought him to Duke as well right. after this season. He followed him over there and was a member of his offensive staff as well. All right, let's get to the story arc. Favorite line from the broadcast. There's a lot. You go first. I've got I've got a couple. Um, 
where is it? Where's my... So, Herman... I, I'll start with this one. You're like, um, you go first, and then you just went right Yeah, you, you know what? You go first. You go first. My bad. I'm going through my notes. Go ahead. All right, that's fine. Um, let's start with the one from Vern. He is, Vern's talking about Philip Fulmer, so he says, mm-hmm. Philip Fulmer, that is a man who is very familiar with the lives of cats and how many there are. Mid-season, they were howling for him, first job. Now they win five in a row, and there's talk from Mike Hamilton, the athletic director, about a contract extension and a raise. Okay, so now I remember this because that was originally going to be my my pick for my favorite quote, but I knew you were going to do that because it had the cat thing. Of course. Um, and it's a phenomenal quote. A very odd c- comment, I feel like, from the get-go. Uh, from Who Vern, doesn't know about the lives of cats, though? That, I mean, I don't. That's that's for sure. Um, but yeah, that, that was still a very solid, very solid, uh, very solid quote. So my favorite is is this, and this is a stat, like as much dumb, useless information that I have stored in my brain, okay? And you know how much that is. There are, you know, there's like times like when you'll hear like a stat or something. It's not even like an important stat or anything that's that crazy, but you just know you'll you'll remember it forever. Like oh yeah, when I told you about in Hook, when Dustin Hoffman his his uh, you, like our costume weighed 80 pounds like i'll never forget i'll never forget that stat for whatever reason here's another stat that i know about herman johnson herman johnson number 79 the the i think he was a tackle or a guard i believe he's a guard um for lsu at this time did you know that herman johnson was the largest baby ever born in the state of louisiana at 15 pounds 14 ounces I did know that because you said this on the on the podcast before. Yes, it is an incredible, incredible number. Thoughts and prayers to his mom. Um, that is tough, but the quote was, "When he moves, he makes the ground tilt," and that was from none other <laughs> than Vern himself. Uh, that was one of my favorites. The other ones, I, I guess I could save them for um, for the worst take because, or like the the coldest take because there's several of them. I got one one more that we got to get off here from Vern. He said, this is the first time since 99 that Tennessee wore the all orange. They look a little bit like moving dreamsicles. Dreamsicles are delicious, by the way. We can agree on that, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that. But also, those uniforms were terrible. Terrible. I don't hate them. I don't hate them. You know what? I don't hate them. I, there are worse things. I know I'm not going to sound like... Like Mrs. Tui, I'm not going to sound like that because I'm willing I to wear that, that gaudy orange. But I, I think that there's there are worse uniforms than the all orange Tennessee. Okay. I'll just say that. Coldest take from the broadcast. Mercy, there were a lot. So many. So set many. a record here. Yeah. Gary Danielson after Ryan Perilou evades pressure and hits Brandon LaFell on his deep ball, and you see all the potential right there. Gary takes that moment. You know he had this in his back pocket. He was mm-hmm. waiting for the first big Ryan Paraloo throw to say this. He says, watch out for this Ryan Paraloo next year. Watch out, college football. This guy's going to be spectacular. He got two more snaps in his LSU career, and that bumps me out. I mean, it's easy to see why he thought that would happen. but I, yeah, He wasn't alone was, in saying that. There's no it, nothing wrong with saying that at the time. But this is, you like, you hit it. You said it best. Like, this is definitely one of those scenarios where he, like, I was like, oh, man, I can't wait to drop this. Oh, yeah. I definitely had that. And it's seemingly like something that is like low-hanging fruit for sure, but then also like pretty big safety net built in. You know what I mean? Like, oh, what you know, he's going to have a whole season next year. Of course he's going to have a great year. 
Easy prediction to be able to make at the time. Seemed mm-hmm. like a very obvious thing. No sort of opposition from it. If we were watching this game at the time, I guarantee you we would have glossed right over it because at that oh, yeah. point, he's at year three. End of year three at LSU. LSU fans had known. They've been waiting for this moment. They probably thought he was going to be starting that year, and that ultimately didn't happen. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, it's still, in hindsight, all these things that were said about him in this game uh, kind of served as a cool take. Yeah, without a doubt. Uh, my least favorite was when, or my, I guess my favorite cold take was when, and we didn't agree on this, which really bummed me out. Mm-hmm. Um, they said, and there's Matt Damon. There's Matt Damon's lookalike, Matt Flynn. I kind of see it. I didn't see, see it at all. I, it's beardless Matt Flynn. Now, if we're talking beard, it's totally out the window. Very, very okay. different look that he takes on. But when he doesn't have the beard, I see it. I see it. Same breed of human. I did. I did not see it. Uh, the other one for me was was this, and that is when Crompton came in in the first uh, the first. See, I think it was like first quarter. It wasn't first series. It was the first quarter, and he comes in, and they actually go on a run running play, and they said Crompton's in the game. Jonathan Crompton's in the game, and Jameson goes a runner. I don't. You know, I'm not going to say he wasn't mobile, but I don't think that was like necessarily his forte. Was he was a running quarterback? That's not what I think of when I see Jonathan Crompton. Of course, we've talked about this before. He's built just like Eric Ainge. There, there's like this like weird factory that is not anywhere in the southeast. It's always somewhere on the west coast uh, that breeds Tennessee quarterbacks, and they're always like 6'5", 220 pounds. With anyway, if you're looking for lazy announcer cliches based on quarterbacks. Or actually just based on the skill positions in general, because Hester was subject to quite a few of those in this yeah, game as well. Jesus. This game had a lot, a lot of them from yep. Vern and Gary. Um, Gary also, or actually, it's Vern who has this line. After Hester puts the game on ice with his 20-yard run, spoiler alert, LSU wins. Right. Vern says, he's going to get to play right after the new year in the Sugar Bowl. So Vern, for the second consecutive week calling an LSU game, incorrectly predicted their postseason fate. Not great, not great, because West Virginia lost that night, of course, and then Georgia actually played Hawaii in the Sugar Bowl that year. But that just kind of goes to show you how far off LSU's national title hopes actually were. Right. I, that's not the craziest thing at the time, despite the fact that it's late in the day, it's probably at that point like what six o'clock on the East Coast, yeah, or something like that at, at least. And we still are of the impression that LSU is not going to the national championship. There was one other one too where Gary is um, he's talking about Dorsey, and uh, he, he's saying this at, at the end of the game. He says, "I absolutely think they'd be playing for the national championship without that chop block." Gary, all you had to do was just yeah, take man. out, just take out the the would be playing for the national championship. Just say they're playing in the national championship. You'd look like the smartest guy in the world. You would have been able to ride that take for 13 years, and instead, yeah. people have just been kind of making fun of you ever since. Yeah, um, ever since then, it's just been a, just a series of just unbalanced takes that are not. This is not year two, very good. I think, for him. Yeah, and, and it was it was odd too because it's like they're just now starting to find their groove and like their like compatibility, I guess, like as as like announcers. You know what I mean? Like, well, they, they could they, like make each other laugh and play off of each other a little bit. They yeah. understand each other's sense of humor. Yeah, I could see that in this game. Um, 
Another, this wasn't a cold take, but this was just one of the dumbest takes from the entire broadcast. And this is, again, Gary Danielson. Hmm. Fourth quarter, okay? It's a close game. It's like 14 to 13. Tennessee's up. Yep. A really good game. Boy, this game has turned into a fight for the SEC championship, hasn't it? Huh? As opposed to, I don't know, like, pillow fight? Could uh, you not say something about the weather? Like, that, that entire comment was like, you ever been like stuck in a conversation you don't want to be in, and you're like, well, it, it is what it is, or what, what? You know what I mean? Just say some like generic throwaway line, or like that. That entire comment is like when you're passing somebody in an office or somewhere, and you just give that awkward half smile, like, mm, like shoulder shrug. That's that's what that was. Fight is too mundane. Say anything else. Say slugfest. Say backyard brawl. Yeah. There is a list of announcer cliches that you can turn to. Anytime a game is close and physical and low scoring, and instead Gary chose fight. Fight. I, uh, I, yeah, I don't get it. Not his best. Not his best. No. Jadavian Clowney reminder that normal people don't play this game. It's a minute and a half, le- it's a minute left in the first half on third and six, and Tennessee is up seven to six. Ryan Perilou drops back, and he effortlessly, I cannot oh say that enough, effortlessly. Just fires this rifle to Demetrius Bird. Bird was stopped, essentially. Like he he was he was planted in his body, he had found his window right. to be able to camp out, soft spot of the zone, and he dives and reaches with one hand and grabs this and makes this grab for the first down with the linebacker closing in on him. And and it's one of those plays that in the course of the game, if you just look at the box score, you'll be like, oh yeah, like eight, nine yard completion, whatever, no big deal. But in real time, you rewind it, and you're like, wait a minute. It is ridiculous. The, the throw and catch to make that happen is absurd. Yeah. And they, they, I think they, they didn't even talk about it enough on the broadcast. No. The, the throw especially, because it was a little bit off target. But Ryan Perilous, that was a 95-mile-an-hour pass, and you can't tell me otherwise. There, there was several times in this game where... Something happened, like, I think it was, like, in the fourth quarter even, and we brought this up last time because I was actually, I was, like, marveling at a similar throw, but it wasn't the same throw. Mm -hmm. And it was something where he, like, dropped back and just, I mean, just flicks, just flicks a pass, I don't know, 60 yards in the air in, like, the front of the end zone. It's just like, what? Like, I mean, like, it it just, you can tell when he he releases it, there's very minimal effort. Just very minimal minimal effort involved. The touchdown like just, pass, right? Where he's he's thrown across it and he, no, and he basically he over, hits the he overthrew it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. That's right. That's right. That was that was a different throw. Yep. You see that arm talent on display and you're just wondering the entire game, why are they not trying to stretch the field more? Why are they not making more of an effort to get this guy comfortable in the offense? They talked about how important that was and they wanted to put him in the right spots, blah blah blah. They weren't necessarily allowing him to do anything other than these short arm throws. When it's like, yeah. all right, give me a quick slant, give me, give me a slant and go, give me something that shows Ryan Perilou's arm before the middle of the third quarter. With those receivers too. I mean, and, and like we haven't we haven't made it. You mentioned his name earlier, but we haven't made a big enough deal out of guys like early Doucette. I mean, Demetrius Bird was I, had I a lot of talent. If, God, they were good. Very very talented. I think early Doucette is still the number one all-time LSU recruit. I can see that. I I, I, I'll never forget his his picture. I remember, like, I think it was him. Or it might have been early Doucette. Wait. That's what I said, like, yeah. Yeah, okay. So there's a picture. Like, his picture, I was like, that kid just looks like an athlete. Like, everything about him, that kid just looks like an athlete. So That's what I see when I look at Hester. Okay. Yeah. Just athlete. I don't care that he was the last scholarship guy in his class or that he was a two-star kid. No, doesn't matter to me. 
can't make jokes about two stars. <laughs> He's going to come for you every single time you every make a joke about time. a two star. Every time. You know what? I don't blame him. The yeah. uh, Trent Richardson, I can't believe they didn't make it in the NFL. I did Dorsey for this before, and I, I don't even know that he's really a good answer for this because guy got injured and he actually played like a decent amount in the NFL. But I'll just say this. If you told me a quarterback on one of these rosters was going to sign a $20 million deal in the yeah. NFL, Matt Flynn would have been my third guess behind both Ryan yeah. Berlew and Eric Ainge. Oh, that that that's still just blows me away that he, he got the money that he did to be able to go to the Seahawks and then have Russell Wilson essentially take over and then nothing really happened to that. So that that is like that was like the first insight for me into seeing that like, oh, the NFL is dumb. Like mm, you I mean you yeah. can just like he not saying he's not talented, but he got that entire contract off of one playoff win, which makes him a hero in my book. But at the same time, you're like, that. what, what just happened? Um, so, yeah, I, I, that, you know, it's an incredible story. But at the same time, like, I, I, I would not have thought that either. And I tell you what, with, with Ainge, especially when he came in as a, as a true freshman, there was so much hype around him. And I think it was him and Brent Schaefer. Um, but the fact that he – I don't want to say he didn't pan out because he had a, a no, good he career. Didn't. But he like there was there were some projections. Saying he didn't pan out the be, NFL. I meant he pan right. out at Tennessee. Yeah. But there was there were some projections saying like his freshman year he was going to be a top ten pick in in the NFL draft by the time mm-hmm. he was a senior. Another guy from uh, or- Oregon of all places yeah, to Portland. go to Tennessee. Yeah, just getting those guys uh, on the West Coast. That's that sort of was the the Tennessee way with Philip Fulmer. Um, did you have any for the Trent Richardson? Can't believe they didn't make him the NFL. I mean. Let me think here. Like, it might be one of the receivers from from LSU, just because yeah. there were so many of them. I, I can see that. I don't want to say Dorsey, um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, it's like it's hard not to, you know. And the LSU receivers. I mean, Brandon LaFell was playing in the yep. league not that long ago. Now he but drops I mean, a lot of passes, but you know. early Doucette, though, like to be that like that highly regarded and touted coming out of True. high school. That's True. I mean. Play with the Cardinals for a bit as well. Um, the thing you didn't know slash remember until rewatching slash researching this, one of the things that I probably would have just glossed over um, had I just watched the game and not, not really spent any time looking stuff up was LSU had this offensive staff prior to this year yeah. that – Went through the, this like weird decision making process that, looking back on it, is, is kind of amazing to think about. Where like I knew they, that they had lost Jimbo to Florida State, but I, I forgot that Les had Todd Munkin as this passing yeah. game coordinator the year before, and then he went out and got Oregon offensive coordinator Gary Croton instead of Todd Munkin, and then Todd Munkin was like, "Nah, I'm not sticking around. I wanted to take over the offense." By right. the way, Gary Croton uh, currently a high school football coach in Utah, Utah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, but Fisher leaving as the heir apparent to Bobby Bowden at Florida State makes sense, understandably so. Um, bigger opportunity potentially ahead and to be able to to kind of – that was at a time when that was still a thing where you could be like a coach and waiting somewhere. So I feel like we really don't have that as much now. I mean, I'm glad you brought that up because, one, it, it like when you say like that, that was at a time where it was like more accepted, I guess, and like – it never really was a thing up until this point. I feel like, you know, yeah, I mean, yeah, like it obviously that it happened. I'm sure there's like definitely examples from like, you know, the like back in the day where you have some older coach that is going to like hand the reins over to whoever your 
you know, his defensive coordinators or he's known right. the longest or anything like that. But at the same time, um, I mean, yeah, like Muschamp was like really the first one that was a coach in waiting yeah. at uh, like for Texas. And then you had it like obviously with Jimbo going to, to Florida State. But it's kind of odd, too, because a lot of them came from this one, you know, this one coaching staff almost or this one this one place. And, yeah, we, we haven't really seen that much of that since then, I guess. But um, I don't know. That's, it's a weird thing because I remember the thing with Muschamp was we all knew he was going to be the next guy behind Mac Brown. And then Mac Brown was mm-hmm. like, nah, I'm not going. He's yeah. Stay. <laughs> okay. Good for you, Mac. Yeah, uh, Joker Phillips at Kentucky. That's a, mm-hmm. another one on a, on a lesser scale, of course. But, yeah, just, just weird to kind of have that dynamic at play. And in a way, though, it kind of makes sense now in this current age of recruiting where there's all this negative recruiting that goes around and coaches are it's seemingly always rumored to be leaving or something like that like to be able right. to kind of get ahead of some of that stuff but i, I also think that's because ad's don't want to pigeonhole themselves and they don't want to necessarily yeah. do something like that if they don't have to um another thing that i forgot tennessee only had four players drafted the following two years and, and that's something that, that's not a USC thing. I made sure yeah, I double real check and I looked this up. 2008, Gerard Mayo, uh, you had Ainge as well. And then Brad Cottom, who was like 6'9", 6'10", or whatever. He just looked like a giant in this game, at the Tennessee tight end. And then you had Robert Ayers in 2009. But that was it for Tennessee in 2009. That's crazy. That's stunning with how well that they recruited for so much of the Philip Fulmer era to not see that development. And maybe that's a little bit part of the problem and why he was falling out of favor because you weren't necessarily seeing these guys get to the NFL. Now, I understand that they had Eric Berry, of course, uh, a little bit later yeah. on. But still, they that's, hit, that's, they, that's, they a low, that's a low number. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I, I, don't really, I mean, I don't know. I still think they had a lot of talent for sure. Because, like, you got to think about it too. Eric Berry, Arian Foster coming off this team. True, good point. You know, it's, it's a, lot of, a lot of high in talent. I also forgot uh, Glenn Dorsey being essentially a shell of himself in, in this game, and he was a decoy. Let's let's call it what it is. When he was yeah. when he was in the game, he was a decoy. Just couldn't get off those blocks. And and you tend to think about, oh yeah, LSU clinching the SEC championship during this 2007 season. Of course, Glenn Dorsey was playing a big part in that. When actually down the stretch, they could have used him in that Arkansas game, and mm-hmm. they got by without him in the SEC championship to yeah. be able to beat Tennessee. What did you forget? Uh, I forgot about David Cutcliffe. Still being there. And I forgot about David Cutcliffe not only being at Tennessee for this year, but also being at Duke for that long. Like yeah. that, That's still mind-blowing to me. Um, and the other part about that is it's kind of this weird, and maybe it's an insight as to why they've had issues. And I'm not saying it is or not because I think Cutcliffe's a phenomenal coach. But you, you do kind of see this um, tendency, I guess, uh, or habit where Tennessee, it, it seems like they're – idea and the band-aid they would they would try to you know implement like to fix things was all right what was working like a decade ago right like let's just go back to that and and then that's you know it it didn't always work out so but how do you how do you not do that and i've seen a lot of programs that do this i've seen nebraska do this i've seen michigan do this and it just seems like when you taste that bit of success and Mm -hmm. miami i actually don't think did this I think Miami actually kind of got away from that. And if you watch like the U part two, they actually did it in a much different way with, with someone like Butch Davis, where mm-hmm. they actually made a legitimate effort to clean up the, the academics. And then Miami ended up being Miami, and then the Nevin Shapiro stuff happened. But there's such a tendency for these schools that had success, big-time success in the 20th century, to try and apply a lot of the same logic. And it just doesn't work. And I think that's why you see some of these teams that – 
have been down for longer than we expected, and we just right. expect this rise to automatically happen. And it's it's tougher than that. It's just not as easy as being like, oh, this worked, and this should be able to work again. And I, and also, it, well, one, that's one of the reasons why guys like, and I, and I hate to say this, but you know, I, I always harp on this with the NFL being really bad about this, but like college football's, you know, especially the SEC is pretty guilty of it too, in terms of you find out who you think is the guy who's like really good, and then that guy just has a job forever. Like Will Muschamping, a DC somewhere in the SEC. Think about how many stops he's been at, and then you know, like Don Ch- or John Chavis, especially. I mean, that guy. We're gonna find out one day that like John Chavis, somebody's gonna tell us that he's like Moses. It's like, oh yeah, that guy's like 340 years old. And I'm going to be like, yeah, I believe that. That makes sense. But I mean, that kind of thing, it makes sense. And, you, and really when you look at Tennessee and, and how, how much it really worked, like how great those offenses were under Cutcliffe and, and stuff like that, I, I get it. It's just, it didn't work in this case. Got to be able to adapt. When the losing team blew it, a couple instances here. There's the fake punt at midfield where this, you could smell it from a mile away. And I think Tennessee actually was preparing for this, where mm-hmm. Patrick Fisher completes a pass to Quinn Johnson, and it gives LSU a first down during this time when they're still down 14 to 13, 12 minutes left in the fourth quarter. This is kind of peak less. And he pulls this off despite the fact that a lot of people knew what was what was coming because they always expect a little bit of trickery. The, the spot of the field right. that they were at, it made perfect sense. But Quinn Johnson was just the middle guy on that block, that punt, you know, punt protection team, and they just didn't necessarily guard him, but they guarded the two guys on the outside, and they, they were able to take advantage of this. And it was it was huge because you you know that Les is going to always have at least a trick up his sleeve, whether that's you know going forward on fourth down, or of course the fake field goal toss that he. Should have patented against South Carolina. If he didn't yeah. patent it, he should have because it's one of the prettiest trick plays you will ever, ever, ever see. Love that play. Gosh, it's yeah, so good. Same. Um, and even though LSU punts a- after this, after they convert it, they still end up punting, the defense gets a much, much needed breather. So LSU then punts them deep, and it's third and five for Tennessee, deep in their own territory on their own 14. Ten minutes left, and you know what happens. Burns says, and this was, uh, <laughs> we probably should have brought this up in coldest takes. Yeah. Vern says, they have yet to turn the ball over and they have yet to commit a penalty. And then Eric Ainge throws a pick six. Jonathan Zenon jumped the route, took it to the house. And as Gary pointed out, Ainge threw it to the wrong guy. He had the inside rub play open. It was it was right there. And at the same time, as we said, you know, I think his receiver still could have made a better play on the ball. But, whew. They, they played neck after that. Like, yeah. they were never going to hear it again. That's a top five neck moment. I mean, I can see that, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, and I tell you what, that, like, I, we knew how it ended, of course, but another thing that I, I didn't realize until going back and watch this, I didn't realize how much time was still on the clock. They had chances. Tennessee had chances still because it looks, that ends up being the game, but it kind of wasn't because they had a shot late, and they had this long 47-yard catch by Arian Foster that gets Tennessee yeah. into the red zone. There's three minutes left. And then the very next play, Eric Ainge throws the interception to Gary Beckwith. Right. Just a brutal, brutal misread. Did not see the linebacker slipping into coverage. 
And that that's a tough one to be able to stomach because you could say on the other one, yeah, it was a missed, it was a jumped route, all those different things. They had the play snuffed out on the other sideline. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's not so much on Eric Ainge as it, as it looks, but that one, as he would admit, that's a tough one to be able to live down when yeah. that that ended the game right there because then Hester put it on ice. Right. Um, I will say one more thing that I forgot. We're talking about the sec- the secondary and how talented this team was in general, and I should have mentioned this earlier. Um, one of the things I forgot about, and it was kind of overlooked because of, well, one, he was a freshman, and then two, Craig Stelz was incredible, how good Chad Jones was. Mm. And and what happened, like the, the freak I don't, I don't athlete. Say freak athlete. And I don't want to say downfall because that's not how his career ended, but just like the, the horrible way that it ended um, is obviously something I, I, I want to say regrettable just because I feel like a lot of us were cheated out of, of seeing – what would be a very promising career because the kid was so talented in football and baseball. Um, but, yeah, just an incredible athlete and, and just at times all over the field even in this game. Definitely looked the part very much of a, of a DBU participant. Mm-hmm. Kind of surprised that he didn't end up being one of these main guys that we talk about. Um, probably also would have been good for um, uh, Trent Richardson. Can't believe they didn't make it in the NFL. Well, he got a horrific car accident. I, I know, but still, yeah. like, yeah. Basically, yeah, I guess that's a bad example. I take that back. Yeah. I take that back. <laughs> All right. we'll, we'll get Will to bleep that part out. Yeah. There you uh, go. What would have happened afterwards if the result was flipped? LSU obviously doesn't play for a national championship. Clearly. That much mm-hmm. we know. Virginia Tech, I think, does. I think Virginia Tech does and not Georgia because you got to remember the BCS standings at the time and the potential hurdle because Virginia Tech won, won on this day as well. So they were... They were the ones that were still ranked ahead of LSU at the time. Right. And because Georgia, like, they, they, they were ranked ahead of Georgia after this day as well in the BCS standings. So Georgia being idle, I don't know how that necessarily would have benefited them. I, I think that Virginia Tech would have wound up in this game despite the fact that they had the blowout loss to LSU. They had the second loss yeah. on their resume. How painful that would have been for LSU to watch Virginia oh Tech playing in a national championship after just kicking the crap out of them early in the year. Ohio State probably wins a national championship if LSU doesn't win this game. I mean, I'll never say that, but yeah. Um, <laughs> I it is, it is like in typical LSU fashion, the way the year goes, it's one of the most memorable and, and like fun, exciting, like start to finish years imaginable. I mean, you talk about like, we, I mean, the Florida game. I mean, the, we've already done an entire adjustment more on that one. The mm-hmm. Auburn game, which, again, if, if you have time after this is over, go watch that game, like, now. It's awesome. Um, just an incredible, incredible season. It's it's weird to think what would have happened. I, I don't know exactly um, who gets in. It's, it's hard to say, you know. It, it really is hard to say. What I will say is it would have been very hard to stomach if it was Virginia Tech. Mm. And, and the way this season kind of went was – all right, so one time, it's a little story here. One time I was at a Brooks and Dunn concert, okay? That's a great start to a story. Yes, and it was, um, I forgot who opened, but it was at, uh, it doesn't matter where it's at, but it was like basically Lakewood Amphitheater, outside thing in the summer, and, and one of our like beer vendors or something like that, the bar I worked at, they got us tickets, right? So I went with a couple of my friends, and they did this giveaway. It was like a, a raffle, and whoever won was going to get this like week-long cruise sponsored by Bud Light. Right, so we're in this like VIP area with Bud Light and Sick just ride. drinking nonstop. And I remember they're doing the raffle, and they're doing it after the concert had already started. So they're announcing the numbers, and no one's there. They got through like 
18, <laughs> like 18 different numbers. And then finally my, my buddy Ruben was like, well, that's me. And he ended up winning the raffle because no one was there. That's kind of how this national championship season was. <laughs> like, not, not to take anything away from, from LSU at all, but that's kind of what it reminds me of. It's just like, all right, who's still here? You, are you, all right, you guys are going to play, Shannon. Let's go. Strap up. If LSU doesn't win this game, seven national titles in seven years doesn't happen. Yeah. Another crazy thought. And probably would have, this wouldn't have necessarily changed the five that happened after it, but nonetheless, no. still different stat. And, you know, we talked about this last time, so we need to remind ourselves here. If they don't win this game, I think the best question is, what does it do for Les's legacy mm-hmm. at LSU? Does he have as much of a – is that leash as long at like towards the end of his career as it was – if he doesn't win this national championship. Because I tell you what, like, even when it happened, and, and I, I don't agree with this necessarily at all, but even when it happened, you had people saying, like, well, he's only won because he had Saban's players. He, you know, he's, he's still not that great of a coach. He, think about all the chaos that happened for that to, you know, for them to even get in the national championship, all that kind of stuff. I wonder if he gets as much leniency at the end of his career as he did. And I don't, I don't think he would have, to be honest. I agree. I agree. I think there are a couple different points when it could have gotten a little bit dicey for less. Because if you remember, the year after, they're unranked. They have a mm-hmm. losing record in SEC play. It's one of the worst LSU seasons of the 21st century, if not the worst. Miles, though, of course, said before the game that they had agreed on terms to the extension. But nothing was official just yet. And right. I'm not saying that, oh, if they lost this game, the extension gets taken off the table unless you know, it gets into a back and forth or it goes to Michigan. Not saying that that happens. Not necessarily. No, but those numbers might be different. The numbers could have been different. And you know, the deal was ultimately signed six days later, and he gets an extension through 2012. And keep in mind, this is 2007 season, end of it, we're talking. Maybe he's not fired after 2008, but he lost four games in 2009. And given what we've come to know of LSU and the standard, I mean, this is a, a place where a coach got fired after a two and two start, as we know from Les getting fired there in yeah. 2016. He did sign the number one recruiting class in 2009. Winning a national title, in my opinion, it gives you time. And unless you're, you know, in a situation like our guy Chiswick, it, it more often than not gives you several years of leeway. Yeah. And I wonder what it would have looked like for Les. Because 2011, of course, was one of the best teams to ever mm-hmm. not win a national championship. We can agree on that. So Just good. with how battle-tested they were and the fact that their first loss didn't come, of course. Eight wins against ranked teams by an average Unreal. of 24 points a game. Unreal. So I don't know if they make a decision before that. But I think after 2009, it gets, it gets interesting. It has to get interesting. And you have to wonder, after five years... Mm-hmm. Do they have a ceiling? And maybe maybe that changes the course of LSU's decade. Maybe it does. I have no idea. But I do think this game was really, really significant and less being able to kind of be himself, to be fully embraced, and to be someone that, you know, five years or eight years after this game is played, that players were really, really going to bat for him. Of course, yeah. we talked about that at the end of the 2015 season and the way that that, that was allowed, what allowed him to keep his job. The dynamics of less were ever-changing, and this was a huge feather in his cap to get, yeah. of course, to the national championship. Well, and I tell you what, and this, this really doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things, so I'm going to add it in there anyway just because I Do remember it. it. Um, <laughs> thank you. So, <laughs> so what he did, and, and, and this is something that Les was really good at, and, and when things were bad, 
they weren't great. You know what I mean? Like there, they, things kind of, I don't want to say would spiral out of control by any means, but it just, you, it, things always seemed a lot worse when things were bad. And But when things were good, he was really, really good at being able to kind of parlay that into even more success and, and kind of compound that with, with other things to, to have more and more successes, I guess. And he gets the national championship game. And you got to think about, again, how close he was to not having this happen. It's, it's crazy to think about. Then he finishes up with a national championship, goes and gets a fantastic recruiting class, and I think ended up signing, thir- it was 13 or 14 of the top prospects in the state of Louisiana signed with LSU that year. All, all 13 or 14 of them. And, and that was, being able to do stuff like that went a long way again with the fan base and also went a long way into kind of forging himself and cementing his place with, with the state of Louisiana and, and LSU fans. I think no matter what, we talk about less differently if he doesn't have yeah. this 2007 season, the ending to this 2007 season. Does anything change with Fulmer? He was, as I said, always one bad year away from being forced out at Tennessee. That seemed probably inevitable gains at this point. a little bit more weight in the offseason just because you're celebrating, you get state dinners. I mean, I, I think that national championship Phil is like April quarantine Chris. Love it. And I just, you know, there's, there's no regrets. Hey, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with a little high on the hog. That's perfect. Guac is a dollar. <laughs> that's, that's cute. Do you have any idea how much money I just made? <laughs> Triple guac. Triple quack. Maybe an SEC title for the first time since 98 changes things. Maybe it does. Because if you feel like you have a ceiling with a head coach, mm-hmm. that's a tough thing to overcome. And, you know, he, he had his tough moments, of course, in the fallout after, you know, the 98 championship season where you talk about the window that they had. We've also mentioned many times the 2005 frustration of starting number three in the country and watching that season just fall by the wayside. I think that we would have had a little bit more patience with Fulmer after this year. He maybe could have survived a bad year had he had the SEC championship. Had he been able to say, look, I just did something that hadn't been done in nine years. I'm still recruiting at a very high level. Give me one more chance to show you that I can make another push. Maybe there would have at least been a little bit more momentum to make that happen. But when you don't win this game and you're kind of left wondering, all right, how much of a different spot are we in than we were at the midseason if we're we're not going to be winning an SEC championship when that was the standard still, that was the goal, the expectation in a place like Tennessee. Yeah, I can't help but think that winning this game and winning an SEC championship, even though it might not have been valued in the same regard that we held it in you know, a decade later, I still think that would have potentially mattered for Filmer and his longevity at Tennessee. Yeah, I mean, and it's weird to, to look at, too, because it wouldn't have had the same impact as it did with LSU because mm-hmm. it wouldn't have led to a national championship berth. Um, the other side of that is, and, and I think maybe it, it, this is, it starts to make more sense when you think about why he had such a, a sharp decline, you go into this this time where, I mean, Tennessee was one of the premier, not just teams in the SEC, but the premier teams in the country for, for a very long time, especially when he like was first got there like in the 90s and all that kind of stuff in the early 2000s. But if I think it helps him tremendously for at least the next year because you're coming off an SEC championship. But then you start looking at what's around the SEC and you start thinking like, how quickly Tennessee kind of was moved to the back of the pack because then you start having yeah. all of their rivals. Uh, Florida, Georgia, Georgia ends up being ranked number one in the preseason the following year. You have Florida win the national championship. Bama goes undefeated. That kind of stuff probably impacted him, you know, a lot as well. 
So has the Lane Kiffin era ever happened? Hmm. Jesus. I don't know. I hope not. I don't know. Just always makes you think. The play or image that we'll always remember when thinking of this. I don't think that there was one specific thing. I came back to, and I wouldn't have said this beforehand, but it was what I kept thinking about in the moments of, like, po- like after watching this game until we recorded this, I love seeing Dorsey celebrating the way that he did on the sideline, where you get the sense that he would have felt a a lot of, of that responsibility mm-hmm. had they not been able to win an SEC yeah. championship, and had they lost two in a row to end the year and not been able to get some of those key defensive stands late with him not being at 100%. They kept showing him on the sideline, and he was definitely more animated, I thought, than, than his teammates were. And I you would have assumed, okay, yeah, obviously a kid like that should Was he even hurt? (laughs) LSU, of course, doesn't get to that spot unless Glenn Dorsey has the year that he does, of course. But at the same time, kid probably felt really bad after the Arkansas game and watching watching his teammates just have to deal with that when it just didn't seem like they could they could have an answer for Darren McFadden right. which you know what that's not the most that's not the worst thing yeah, in the world yeah no like, one did that's it's I forgivable mean, yeah <laughs> but that was that was what I kept coming back to is it was kind of cool to see Dorsey be able to celebrate that and know mm-hmm. that he was going out you know with at least an SEC championship little de- little did they know at the time that it was also for a national right. championship, and there was this 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 interaction as well too with Hester and Les, where before Les even got to the post game handshake with Fulmer, Hester kind of stops him in his tracks and gives him a little bit of a hug, and it's a nice moment just to be just to show that like Hester appreciated the fact that someone came on board and was was able to win a lot of games in the yeah. post-Nick Saban era and do something that I'm sure a lot of people at the time were questioning. Uh, could that be done at, at LSU? Mm-hmm. And, and Hester has talked in the past about how key Les was in the post-Hurricane Katrina yeah. times. And it was kind of cool to see them kind of share that moment a little bit, know that Hester was going out in, in, in the right way, and you could tell that he was appreciative for Les doing what he did. Yeah, and this is something I don't know how we didn't bring, or I didn't bring it up earlier, but incredible job to be able to get back up emotionally, not just physically, but emotionally, from that Arkansas loss. Yep. When, when you really, when, like, I know that winning a conference title, like everyone's going to say, oh, yeah, you know, that's one of our goals at the beginning of the year, and that's great, but that still has to feel like a crushing blow to your national title hopes. Like, I mean, hearing Hester say they're on the flight home and didn't know they had a chance to be in the national title game is still wild. mind-blowing to me. So Wild, wild, wild. Anyway. Great season it was, 2007. If we're going to have a 2020 football season, fingers crossed that we do, I think it's going to be wilder in a different way than the 2007 season just because of how unpredictable this is all going to be. Games potentially getting canceled, only having conference games for everybody with the exception of the ACC and Big 12 who are still trying to... Yeah, Sunbelt's still doing the 8-12 game schedule. Love it. Um, We'll see. We'll see. I I will say this, and this is... I don't want to say bold prediction, but if there's something that that Uncle Chris would like to see. And you talk about it could be a, a wild season. I'm going to make a prediction here. Ooh. Okay. Story of a hurl. Mm. Wins the Heisman. Is okay. he still in college? Are you sure? Hurl's gone wild. I'm pretty sure he's gone. Just let me have my moment. <laughs> Does he have another U of eligibility at Western I don't Kentucky? Know. This is a long, long podcast. <laughs> That's okay. Hey, you know, I'm amazed. The SEC schedule did not come out while we were recording this. BS. I'm so over this. Mind-blowing. We are the person who just chugged an entire gallon of milk and just made ourselves feel worse. <laughs> did not. 
Yeah, we'll close with this um, because this is exactly how I feel right now. When I was at Middle Tennessee State my freshman year, um, I I chugged a, for whatever reason, somebody had like a, a full gallon of milk that had spoiled and they just didn't throw out. It was just like sitting outside of somebody's door for some reason. And somebody bet me $500 that I wouldn't drink it. Like not the whole thing, just take a drink from it. That's I did it? it? I did, yeah, I did it and they didn't pay me. I hated everything about this. <laughs> it's the worst. What a great end of the story. Yeah, there you go. We're going to continue with our SEC Championship Series for It Just Met More. TBD on what and when our next one will be. Still figuring that out. We are doing two podcasts a week. We have a little bit of extra time, as we found out from the SEC schedule, that is not going to be underway until September 26th, that we're going to have a little bit more time to do some of these. So I think that is going to be the plan. We'll, we'll mix it up. Sometimes we'll do Casual yeah. Fridays. Sometimes we'll do It Just Meant More. Just kind of depends on the week. We'll keep everybody posted on all of those updates. We had Matt Luke drop by. Matt Luke, John Don Chavis, what do we need to remember? I don't know what John Chavis... I feel like Dan Chavis <laughs> sounds something like this. That's it. Book him. Book him, Sully. It just means too much. Close enough. Talk to you guys soon.